This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I do these local commentaries just exclusively in the, for the New York area on local issues. And on the national show, I try not to make it too localized because I've been criticized for just being, even when we were just on WABC, for trying to make the show sound like it just took place in my neighborhood. But one of the stories that I commented on yesterday in one of my national commentaries, by the way, if you ever want to hear those national commentaries, all you have to do... Uh, oh, excuse me. Oh, one of those local commentaries. All you have to do is search uh, Frank Morano interviews and more on iTunes or any podcast app. It's very popular. In fact, it's one of the most popular entertainment podcasts in the whole country. Uh, so we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, so if, whether, wherever you live, Alaska, Tennessee, Nevada, Maryland, if you want to hear those, you could still hear them. You just have to subscribe to the podcast, Frank Morano Interviews and More. You'll also get the interviews that we do as individual segments. So in case you don't want to hear me blather on about my personal life, as Larry in Long Island clearly does not, and you just want to hear the interviews itself, you could subscribe to that podcast and do that there. But one of the things that I spoke about yesterday I thought was eh, a, a big local story and a national-ish story. Lo and behold, over the last 24 hours, even though there's a lot going on in this country, the whole country is talking about the situation involving George Santos. And George Santos, if you're not familiar with him, I've known him for a couple of years now. Not well, not well. But he ran for Congress two years ago, narrowly lost. And I don't think anybody thought he had much of a chance at winning. He runs again this year and he gets elected. And this was a district that was occupied by a Democrat. So the the seats that the Republicans won in New York this year that were Democrat held and that are now Republican held, this was one of them. So the New York Times does a very, what can only be described, a very negative article on Santos. The headline is, who is Representative-elect George Santos? His resume may be largely fiction. And initially I'm thinking... When I just saw the headline, I'm thinking that's sour grapes. The New York Times doesn't like that a Republican won a Democratic congressional seat. It's going to be one of the most hotly contested congressional seats in two years, and they're just trying to kind of take him down a couple of pegs. Okay. I read the article, and a couple of things strike me. One, usually when there's a negative article like this, the candidate would issue a point-by-point rebuttal of everything that's inaccurate. The Santos folks did not do that here. The other thing is a lot of what's in here is very easy to look up. So yesterday when I talked about this, 
I said what this story illustrated was the failure of local media. We've seen all over the country news deserts emerge. We've seen the local newspaper becoming something of an antique, something that you have to go to a museum to see or read. And I think that's a shame because we lose a local watchdog on all sorts of different issues. So uh, George Santos, if you're not familiar with him, his campaign biography focused a lot on his personal journey. Son of Brazilian immigrants, the first openly gay Republican to win a House seat as a non-incumbent, somebody who catapulted himself from a New York City public college to become a seasoned Wall Street financier and investor, a family-owned real estate portfolio of 13 properties, an animal rescue charity that saved more than 2,500 dogs and cats. By the way, I know George listens to the show from time to time. If he wants to call in, he's certainly welcome to. But according to the New York Times, almost everything he said about his entire professional life is fake. So they did a review of public documents and court filings from both the U.S. and Brazil. George Santos uh, is only 34 years old, and they looked into basically everything he said. He claimed to work for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. Both of those firms said they had no record of him ever working there. He claimed to have attended and graduated from Baruch College in 2010. Baruch College says he never graduated from there. They have no record of anyone matching his name and date of birth graduating that year. There was very little evidence that his so-called animal rescue group, Friends of Pet United, Pets United, was, as Santos claimed, a tax-exempt organization. The IRS had no record of a registered charity with that name. His financial disclosure forms suggest he's got some wealth. He lent his campaign more than $700,000 during the midterms elections. And over the last few years, last two years, he has donated thousands of dollars to other candidates. He reported a salary of... Uh, $750,000 and over a million dollars in dividends from his company. And um, he, there's a lot of other things about his biography that are questionable. His lawyer, Joe Murray, said in a short statement that it was no surprise that Congressman Alexandros Santos has enemies at the New York Times who are attempting to smear his good name with these defamatory allegations. There's also evidence that he was involved in a criminal case in Brazil for check fraud. When Santos was 19 years old in 2008, he apparently stole the checkbook of a man his mother was caring for, according to Brazilian court records. The police and court records show that Santos used the checkbook to make fraudulent purchases, including shoes. And two years later, Santos confessed to the crime and was charged. The court and the prosecutor in Brazil confirmed that the case remains unresolved. So that period in Brazil overlapped with when Santos said he was attending Baruch College in New York, where he said he was awarded a bachelor's degree in economics and finance. That's not true. Baruch says they don't have any records of Santos using all sorts of variations of his first, middle, and last name. Um... On the biography of Santos that's on the Republican Congressional Committee, it says he also attended New York University. An NYU person says, a spokesperson says, no, he never attended NYU. 
This almost reminded me of the scene. In, they're calling him the talented Mr. Santos after that Matt Damon picture who would just impersonate people and steal people's identities and create fabricated characters. I said yesterday that I thought it was much more similar to Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Catch Me If You Can. But um, they are – it reminded me when there's none of these entities, they're all calling him out on his nonsense. All all these colleges, all these businesses, prosecutors in Brazil – it reminded me of uh, in, in There's Something About Mary. You remember that? Where uh, one of the characters just makes up whole portions of his biography to impress Cameron Diaz's character. And then they, he gets found out because, you know, it's all they had to do was ask. So after he said he graduated from college, Santos began working at Citigroup. Citigroup says that's not true. Um, almost nothing about what Santos said about his biography is true. His personal financial disclosure, which showed a huge and pretty unusual jump in income this year and didn't include details of assets he publicly claimed to possess, such as two mansions, are of a lot of interest to people now. Apparently, he may have even lied about his own home address. So there's you should read the whole story. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page if you want to read it. Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. I think this is pretty interesting. But I feel the same way about this that I did yesterday, which is part of what's interesting about it, is that this represents why local media is so important. If there were local media outlets doing their job, being vigilant, they would have disclosed this to the voters. So um, he may have lied about his address, may have lied about where he got all this money from. He may have lied about whether he received degrees from Baruch or attended NYU. He may have lied about where he, whether he worked at Citigroup or Goldman Sachs. He might have lied about whether he ran Friends of Pets United He may have lied about whether he oversaw an $80 million portfolio and earned a $750,000 salary. He may have lied about whether four of his company's employees were murdered at the Pulse nightclub in 2016, as he once claimed in a radio interview. He may have lied about where he actually lives. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to exaggerate on your resume. I mean, Eric Adams does that like crazy. There are so many things that Eric Adams has said that are conflicting with one another and that really there's very little evidence to back up. Um, I've heard a lot of people in politics, a lot of people on the radio lie about certain aspects of their personal biography. I'll listen to Curtis Slewa, for instance, uh, talk about events that I was present for, and he'll describe something that's easily – that. Anybody in the room will know is not true. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was there for that. That's not true. And, uh, you know, you do it a little bit. George Santos, this is in pathological lying territory. So the question is here, um, what do we do about this? What do you think should be done with the talented Mr. Santos? Is this just a fact of, hey, the voters should have done a better job vetting this? When he was running, and now he's got to be sworn in. They are, see, George Santos is no dummy. He, Kevin McCarthy, doesn't have the votes to be Speaker of the House right now. So George Santos 
had not publicly come out for Kevin McCarthy until yesterday. Now that McCarthy is under siege and George Santos is under siege, he wants an ally in the guy that is the favorite to be the next House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Because a lot of Democrats and some Republicans are wondering how far they should go. Should this be referred to the House Ethics Committee? Should they call for his resignation before he's sworn in? Should they call for his expulsion after he's sworn in? Or should they try and be uh, should they try to prevent him from being sworn in at all? The shame of this is you're seeing people like uh, Democratic Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, the New York State Democratic Chair Jay Jacobs, try to make this a partisan issue. And it shouldn't be. So I would love for you whether you're Democrat or Republican, to take off your partisan hat and tell me if someone makes up almost every aspect of their life and then they get elected to Congress, what should happen? What should happen? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I got to give credit to uh, Robert Zimmerman, who's the guy that lost to Santos. He's been a guest on uh, a lot of shows on the network, including Joan Hamburg. And he said unequivocally, I will not play any role in overturning the election results. It was egregious when it happened two years ago, and I won't play any role in that. These are all good questions, but they're best investigated by the Ethics Committee, the FEC, and the U.S. Attorney's Office. See, I've done a little investigating about this. What um, What I've learned is that Maybe as soon as this week. And by the way, if Santos is going to make some big monumental confession and throw himself on the mercy of the public, this is the week to do it. Because the week before Christmas, then people get into kind of a Christmas mode and uh, all of a sudden January comes about and it can kind of get lost in the Christmas sauce, right? This is the week to do it. You want it to kind of get swept under the rug and before you know it, you're sworn in and you're making news for the things that you're doing. I have um, come to learn, independently of this Times article, that Santos did attend Baruch College, but he did not graduate from Baruch College. And that's something that he's going to have to make a confession for. That's something that he's going to, and from what I understand, is prepared to make a uh, an admission about. He did not work for Goldman Sachs, and this is from a source close to Santos. I'll put it that way. He did not work for Goldman Sachs, and he did not work for Citigroup. He did, from this source that I spoke with, work for a subsidiary of Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. He did not run this nonprofit, but uh, he was somehow involved in this nonprofit. It looks like he was involved in this check fraud case in Brazil. So where do you see this going? Obviously, here's what the Democrats want. The Democrats want Santos to be expelled or not seated at all, and then there to be a special election in February that Tom Suozzi runs in and wins. The Republicans want, they don't particularly care about Santos, they want this to be a Republican seat because it's a narrow, narrow majority. Now, there are other Republicans that can run for this seat. Remember, this is one of the seats that I had... um, I had said that uh, that Curtis Lewis should run for, and Curtis would have won. There are uh, some people that are calling for State Senator Jack Martins to run. 
Some people calling for Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman to run. And, um, you know, it's certainly not inconceivable that you could see an elder statesman of GOP politics out in Nassau County or in Queens. The district does include a little bit of Queens run. But what would you like to see happen? Because to me, I think and I said this to some extent with the Lester Chang incident in Manhattan. Once the election's over, the election's over. Right. And it's up to people to bring this up when he's running for re-election, not to undo the results of the election. I have such a problem, and I said this with Lester Chang, I've said this with other people, I said this with uh, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, I've said this with uh, Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, I've said this over and over again. Larry Krasner is a little bit different, but I have such a problem with undoing the results of an election. I think uh, if they've got a problem with George Santos or if George Santos lied It's not up to the House of Representatives to save the voters of Long Island and Queens from themselves. It's up to whoever runs against him in two years. And shame on the press for not making an issue of this earlier. By the way, some people, so they're calling this searching for a Santos clause in Washington. Uh, They're looking for some way to uh, disqualify him. Some people did raise issues about Santos's resume during the campaign. The Cook Political Report smelled something fishy about the race back in the fall. They told their subscribers that GOP insiders, quote, bitterly regard this race as a recruitment failure. And quoting a Republican operative who was wary of Santos's purported business background, saying, we're not touching him with a 10-foot pole. The North Shore leader, a small Long Island publication, was also on to him. Quote, he boasts like an insecure child. And I want to reiterate, whenever I've met George or spoken with him, he was always pretty nice. I always really liked him. He boasts like an insecure child, but he's most likely just a fabulist, a fake. This is a right-leaning newspaper out there. They wrote an endorsement of uh, Zimmerman. A later article quoted a Republican leader who asked, Are we being played as extras in the talented Mr. Santos? Now, that was during the campaign, but that wasn't really – that didn't come out more broadly. Cook Political Report is a subscriber-only publication. North Shore Leader, very tiny publication. I didn't see anything in Newsday. I didn't see anything in the Times at the time or the Post or the Daily News or any of the – or News 12 or any of the outlets that cover Long Island or New York congressional races. What do you think should happen here? See, here's what – this person that I spoke to last night about this was saying George Santos can make an admission about Baruch, right? Uh, We saw this with the uh, Senator from Connecticut, Dick Blumenthal, who made his admissions about lying about his role in, uh, in the military. But the question then becomes is where did he get this money from? He lent his campaign $700,000 And if he didn't get that from working at a job he claims he had, where did that money come from? And that can potentially lead him down a very dangerous path. My attitude is he should be seated. My attitude is he should not be expelled. And if it looks like he did something uh, criminal with respect to um, his lying on FEC forms or this money that he can't account for it when he pays his taxes, then that's up to the Department of Justice. And he's, if he's indicted and he's convicted, 
then he'll give up a seat and there'll be a special election, right? Tell me what you think this would happen. And I would appreciate it, honestly, if you could take off your partisan cap and just look at this as objectively as possible. Because this is a purple district. Santos happens to be a Republican, but he could easily be a Democrat. We've seen Democrats do things like this before. What do you think should happen? If a congressman lies about every aspect of his life, including his finances, and then gets elected, including his criminal history, and then gets elected, what should occur? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hey, hello, Frank. Um, I'm inclined to agree with you. I, I think he should be seated and have to run for reelection in two years now. But hopefully by then, the voters in his district will be well aware of his activities. I'm also concerned about the funding, as you mentioned, because, you know, this funding could be from Brazil. We don't know. I, I think that needs to be thoroughly looked at. And my last comment has to do with his opponent, Zimmerman. If Mr. Zimmerman paid anybody to do opposition research during the campaign, he should get a refund because whoever it was didn't do anything. Clearly. You, you know, that's such a good point. Uh, that is such a good point. And I am ashamed to admit that I didn't think of that. And uh, I, that's uh, that's that's a great point. And also, you know, um, I, I think the issue two years ago when he ran against Swazi is people never really expected him to come as close as he did to winning. So I was going to say, why didn't this come out uh, two years ago when he ran against Tom Swazi? One, I think he was making less brazen claims about his uh, his resume at the time. But I think the other issue was that people just, um, you know, they just never thought he, he had a real chance at winning. And he was ahead uh, on, after the ballots were counted on Election Day. It was only after the mail-in ballots were counted that Swazi pulled ahead. Thank you, David. And it's interesting, uh, he never had a primary. And I really do wish Curtis would have taken my guidance and run for this seat. He would have beaten him in the primary, and I think he would have won in the general election, and I think you would see Congressman Curtis Lewa right now without this. Because all Curtis's scandals, as I said yesterday, all Curtis's scandals are out there in the open. And you know who I think would agree with that? Curtis Lewa. He wrote to me yesterday... He sent me this New York Times article. He said, um, he says, and I thought that I had problems, dot, dot, dot. He said, that could have been my seat. And again, I think Curtis should have listened to me on this one. 800-848-9222. But I don't want to make the issue Curtis. I want to make the issue, what would you do about the talented Mr. Santos? We'll continue with your calls uh, in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is JoJo appropriately singing the song that Jay Jacobs is singing to the talented Mr. Santos, Leave, Get Out. It was actually her birthday yesterday. She turned 32. Can you believe that someone who was born in 1990 is 32 years old? I feel like 1990 was last week. And if you're born in 1990, you're th- in your 30s. It's amazing to me. Absolutely amazing. Uh, got a lot of interesting stuff uh, coming up your, coming up for the next couple hours. Uh, we're going to talk aliens and UFOs and what that means for the, um, for the U- National Defense Authorization Act in the next hour. We're going to get into it with a real expert. Excuse me, a real expert who has studied this stuff. But uh, a lot of you waiting patiently to be heard. Want to get to as many of you as we can. 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. Uh, You know, Frank, I would like on a personal level to see Congressman uh, Alex Santos take the oath of office because the Republican majority is a narrow one. I would like to see Kevin McCarthy become the next speaker. But I think it all depends on what takes place in the next couple of weeks to push back. I could tell you a case before I was involved in Westchester County politics and started watching what was going on up here. About 40 years ago, we had a guy who was a congressman. His name was Bruce Caputo. He was an attractive candidate, and he was well-liked. But he had said that he had served in Vietnam, and they found out that he lied. And uh, he had to give up his uh, position as a, a, a congressman. Uh, Tip O'Neill, the late speaker, even in his book, Man of the House, he referred to this case and he said, what a disappointment that that all went down the drain for uh, Bruce Caputo because he lied. Well, that's a, that's a great philosophy. And Al, I, I can't disagree with you. It makes sense to me. 800 Two two Frank is in Queens. Hello, Frank. Hey, Frank. Um, I'm actually in uh, George Santos's district. I, I voted for him. Oh, um, I, I would think I would think back in olden days, you know, ten years ago, you know, we we probably would question whether he should be seated or, or not. But honestly, as a constituent out here in Northeast Queens, seeing what's going on in uh, in our neighborhoods and and his district. We feel like we're at political war. So quite frankly, you know, if if uh, a doctor can lie and tell the United States uh, population that uh, Fetterman is capable and cognitive enough to be seated as a senator, I don't care if George Santos, you know, uh, dropped out of high school. I don't care if he was homeless. I don't care if he's been collecting welfare. Well, what if, he did, is- what if he did commit this check fraud in Brazil, as he apparently has admitted to? Does that bother you? No, he can go to let Brazil deal with that. I want someone who's going to deal with my issues, yeah. my yeah. issues, and the people here in my district. And he will. He said he will. He said he's going to vote the way we want him to vote. That's all we care about. Yeah, I, Frank, unfortunately, I think you're right, and I think that's a real shame. And I said this during the Georgia Senate race with Herschel Walker, and I said this during the Pennsylvania Senate race with John Fetterman. I think it is such a problem that I, I give Frank credit for being honest. But I think people are willing to forgive anything as long as you vote in Congress the way your party wants you to. 
But I, I do think that's sort of a Faustian way of looking at this because what's going to happen for the next two years, every Republican in the House of Representatives is going to be asked about George Santos. He is now going to be the issue, especially now that the press is going to be digging in, the, in his background. If you're a Republican, you should want um, a Republican that has no criminal history and that has not just lied to everybody for the last couple of years and who can't explain how he's earned any of his money. That's who you should want running, you know, working the seat. I don't think you should, if you're a Democrat, say, oh, we don't care that John Fetterman can't speak and doesn't own don't doesn't know his own name. And I'm being hyperbolic there. And we don't care that George Santos is a criminal as long as they vote our way. In my view, that's exactly what's wrong with the country. That's exactly what's wrong is we are now a country dominated by partisanship. 800-848-9222. I'm going to get back to your um, questions and comments in just a moment. But one of the things that we've been dealing with is, uh, you know, my son's been kind of under the weather and my wife has been under the weather. Fine. So we have we're not really into keeping the television on during the day. Once in a while, you know, I'll put on, um, I don't know, a Star Trek episode if I'm looking after Carmine in the morning. But for the most part, we don't like to encourage him to watch TV because we want him to be a radio listener so that his father has a job in the future. And he can get all his little, you know, cohorts to listen to radio as well. But when he was sick, he and he's so he's so drawn to the screen. And he he looks at the screen. doesn't really matter what's on, but he likes to look at the colors. He likes to look at the screen. He likes to see children because my wife says he realizes that he's one of them. He's one of those children. So since he's been sick uh, with the flu and everything, and since my wife has been sick, we've been a little more liberal in terms of allowing him TV time. So over the course of the last six or seven days, I have seen more episodes of Sesame Street than I have in my entire life. And you know what? There's some good stuff on there. Uh, There's some really interesting stuff. Most of it is, you know, it's just kid stuff. It's kind of silly. But there's stuff about letters. There's stuff about numbers. There's stuff about uh, different lessons. There's some decent animation. Elmo is a very popular character. Everyone told me when my uh, wife was with child that um, every child goes through a phrase where they love Elmo Sure enough, I, I, I don't know what it is. The guy loves Elmo. Elmo comes on that screen, he's looking at Elmo. But um, I have been watching all these Sesame Street episodes, and I watched Sesame Street when I was a child, but I'm struck by the conspicuous absence of one of my favorite characters. My favorite character on Sesame Street, I think, when I was a child, it was probably Big Bird. But as I was getting, as I got older, my favorite character, because I'm a fan of horror movies, was... In old Transylvania, when I was a lad, our castle was cold, yet we never were sad. We learned to be happy, we danced around the hall. And learning to count was the key to it all. By counting each count, I knew just where to start. And one special step stayed close to my heart. 
Count Von Count, the Count from Sesame Street. If you haven't seen Sesame Street in a while, you don't remember the Count. The Count is slash was a vampire, right? He was a takeoff on the Bella Lugosi interpretation of Dracula, but he's not really into the undead and drinking blood and that kind of thing. He's really just into numbers. He likes to count. That's why he's Count Von Count. But um, I know the actor that voiced the Count died about 10 years ago, but they had somebody else take over for him. But I watched Sesame Street now, and no exaggeration, in the last six days, I have seen all or some of probably about, no, no exaggeration here, 40 different episodes of Sesame Street, right? And I have not seen the Count at all, except when there's the there's like two songs that they sing, one is the letter of the day where Elmo comes in. It's clear this is now Elmo's show. You know how um, The Simpsons went from being a show about Bart Simpson to a show about Homer? This is what has happened on Sesame Street. Elmo is the star of this show. And you see very little Oscar the Grouch. You, stu- you do still see a lot of Cookie Monster. He's got his own dedicated segment. You see a decent amount of Big Bird. I see very little Bert and Ernie. But I see almost none of the count, and I want to see the count. So when they do this song where they announce the letter of the day, what's the letter? What's the letter? It's the letter. What's the letter? And they go through the letter of the day. He's in that song, and he's mouthing the words, but he doesn't do anything. He doesn't really count anything. They're, they do give lessons about numbers, but they do it with Martians. I'm not joking. They have Martians. They have aliens on Sesame Street, which I like because, you know, I'm into Martians but where is the count? And I can't help but wonder, and I'm being serious about this. This is not shtick. Did they do away with the count because they thought he was too scary? And they didn't do away with him, but he has gradually faded into the background. This guy used to be a key player, and he's not anymore. Did they do away with it because he's not politically correct? Did they do away with it because, I don't know, his time had come and gone. And he's not in his prime anymore. Did they do away with him because he wasn't popular anymore? Did they do away with him because the actor that's um, that's uh, voicing him now, uh, I believe it's, uh, he was originally voiced by Jerry Nelson. Now he's supposedly voiced and puppeted by a, someone named Matt Vogel. Did they do that because he's not as talented as the original actor? I don't know. But I don't like it. And I must say, I had hoped that when Carmine got to the point where he was watching Sesame Street, we would see a lot more of... Oh, I just love counting! May I join you? Oh, sure, Ken. Sure thing! Uh, uh, and you can sing and count along, too! If you love counting and you know it, clap one time. One! If you love counting and you know it, clap one time. One! If you love counting and you know it, and you really want to show it, if you love counting and you know it, clap one time. Now, this is an iconic character. He's been in movies. He was on The Simpsons, um, Counting Coconuts. He was in one of the Muppet movies. He was even on uh, David Letterman's show. Why is he not as powerful a player in the world of Sesame Street? I think counting... He's still very important for children to learn, and I found him to be a very effective teacher. Is there something I'm missing here? What do you think?
800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. What has become of Count Von Count? Greetings. I have decided to count these blocks again. Now, hold on, Count. Now, these are Ernie's blocks. Yeah, you, just, you just leave those blocks alone. Yeah. You're not right. my blocks. I am counting. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. Six. Six blocks. <laughs> now, what did you want to say? Ernie wanted to say that you should leave those blocks alone. You should leave things where you find them. Yeah, that's what he wanted to say. Oh, did I move his blocks? Yes, you did. I am sorry. One. Two, three, four, five, six, six blocks. <laughs> Thank you very much. The other side of midnight. midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. Um, This is a group called Take Six. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. I find this to be, I I have nothing against this group. They're clearly very talented singers. But um, this is one of those songs I find to be completely overplayed and overdone, almost to the point of being a cliche. I like a good song that you don't hear uh, usually around Christmas times, like Yingle Bells. Or, um, you know, Santa Claus is a black man, or uh, Donde Esta Santa, or um, Must Be Santa by Bob Dylan, or that Bing Crosby, um, you know, uh, David Bowie duet. You know, this is, I mean, it's fine. It's just very ordinary. If there's one consistent theme about this show, what I try to do is the stuff that nobody else is doing. For instance, I would venture to guess that there are very few other programs that are uh, talking about Sesame Street right now. 800-848-9222. By the way, uh, my wife gets Christmas cards, right, from all over. And, uh, oh, you know, my my social group and her social group and family and friends. And she hangs them up. And we, we we don't really send Christmas cards. But... We get one Christmas card from my friend Gary, who's moved to Florida, and I haven't seen him in a few years. And, uh, you know, I, I, I used to see Gary all the time when he lived in New York. Great guy, wonderful guy. We go back a long way. And she said, your friend Gary Gotlin has no idea what our son's name is. I said, what? What happened? And he wrote us a very nice holiday card. I don't know if it's technically a Christmas card because he's Jewish. 
But he says, uh, uh, dear Frank, Rachel, and of course, baby. That's what he put. Now, the thing that I didn't understand about that is, I mean, it's pretty easy to find out Carmine's name. You could go to Google. You could listen to any episode of this show. You could call Larry in Long Island. You could go on the Facebook. I think he's on the Facebook. There's Carmine material all over. That was such a conspicuous thing to do. I mean, it really is an obvious admission that you don't know your friend's son's name. But I took it as a reminder that I have to do a better job keeping in touch with uh, with Gary because I haven't se- I haven't speak- spoken to Gary in you know in a few months now and I haven't seen him in a couple of years since he moved down there. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Rivke is in Brooklyn. Hello, Rivke. Yes, hi. I really enjoy when you talk about Carmine. Thank you. I have grandchildren that that age, and I just wanted to tell you something. I happen to be a teacher. I mean, I was a teacher. I'm retired now. And when, about 20 years ago, when my kids were younger, my my youngest daughter was two years old, and I didn't believe in sending them. At that time, you really didn't send them to school till three at least. Right, sure. I mean, I have a grandchild. I have a grandchild in in a play group. I don't think they do too much learning there. I don't know. I think they're just like a babysitting. Well, family. yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that's what the the purpose that parents use them for that, and to maybe socialize them and get them used to seeing and other children. Right, right. They socialize that exactly. They socialize. But I had a two year old daughter, and uh, she was the uh, she's the youngest of the brood. And I kept her home, and she was going crazy sitting home. She missed her siblings, and she kept crying. She wanted to go to school. So I I had a computer, a very simple computer in the house, an Apple computer, and I had these learning programs. Read a Rabbit was popular in those days. But I also had Sesame Street. Now, your son is sitting and watching something, but he's only one year old. Right. I put her on the computer. I got a mouse that was made for little hands, so it was easy for her to do. And I put her on Sesame Street, and I put her on the program teaching the alphabet. The thing with my daughter was she kept switching it to the math section. Oh. And she was working with numbers. At first, I was like, you know, wait, I want you to learn the ABC. But then I said, oh, you know what? Let her do the number. If she's happy, I'll let her do the numbers. Now, I don't know if they had the count. I don't remember if the, he was probably there, the count. But they had all kinds of interactive things with numbers. Well, I and think she that's, kept doing Yeah, I think she that's kept great. Doing it. Well, guess what happened? You know, my other my other daughters, my son is good at math, but my other daughters were not too good at math. But when she was in the first grade, her teacher says to me, you know, your daughter, she's a math whiz. Well, that's terrific. What, what does she do now? Is she an accountant? She's a secretary in oh, a school. And nice. she needs the math, and, the, and she's very good with computers. She's fantastic. So they love her for that. They they need the computers to manage different things, manage the buses, and so it did help her tremendously. But not only that, all through school, she became very good in math. That's wonderful. They put her in in high school. They put her in advanced math. Well, that's wonderful, Rivkin. 
I, my other kids, when I, when they took the Regents, I had to. They have this crash course thing where if you take you notice the none of this is getting us any closer course, to the mystery of what the, happened to the count. You, this is an interesting story. Class. I'm glad her granddaughter's said, uh, doing you know, so well. But what happened to the, the count? We still don't know. Where's the count? They have garlic at Sesame Street? Are you sure? Being driven out of Sesame Street, Alvania? I don't need it, Where is the count? And well, she didn't. She got a very high mark. Well, that's that is uh, terrific, Rifki. I'm great. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad she's doing well. I uh, appreciate you calling. I'm telling you for for Carmine. You know, when he gets older, get him on the computer. Th- thank you, Rifki. I appreciate I appreciate that. Um, well, you know, Rifki's a nice lady, but uh, she is someone that does not know where the count is. That's a bigger mystery than. Why George Santos chose to lie about going to Baruch College. The other thing that I wonder is if you're George Santos and you're going to lie about where you graduated from school, why would you pick Baruch? I mean, nothing against Baruch, but why wouldn't you say Harvard, Yale, Brown, right? Why would you say, oh, yeah, I graduated from Baruch when you didn't? I, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I was at the uh, Talkers magazine uh, seminar. I was on a panel at the Talkers Conference back in the summer. And one of the people in the crowd, I think I told this story, but one of the people in the crowd was another talk show host named Mark Simone. And I mentioned, I didn't know Mark was in the crowd, but I mentioned Mark in an anecdote. And it was a positive anecdote. It was, you know, when we used to pal around together a piece of advice that Mark had given me, which was very uh, meaningful. And so... Mark um, was in the crowd and someone goes over to him at the break after the panel was over. He says, hey, that was something. Morano gave you a little shout out there. And Mark said to this person, he's a liar. I never said that. I've never had a conversation with Frank Morano in my life. And I'm thinking to myself, why would I make that up? And if I'm going to make up an anecdote, of someone giving me radio advice, why would I pick Mark Simone? Why wouldn't I pick uh, Rush Limbaugh or Bob Grant, someone that's A, dead, and two, a bigger star? So I don't understand this George Santos situation, and I don't understand where the count is. I want to count your blocks. One, two, two seconds, three, four, five, what are you doing? six, seven, eight, Why aren't you trying eight, to go get something? Nine, ten, <laughs> what is he 11, doing? You'll never get anything this way. 14, 15. I love the count. He's great. Justin Verlander, by the way, introduced by the Mets yesterday, a Cy Young winner now in Met pinstripes. I am sorry to lose Syndergaard. Uh, I am sorry that uh, DeGrom is no longer with the team. But uh, even Steven Matz, and I still, uh, but I'm excited about Verlander. Keep that in mind. Cy Young Award winner Justin Verlander in the fourth hour of this program when we do the $1,000 minute. Just saying. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to the Fugazi Tom in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom. Hi, Frank. Um, Look, uh, you should look up this song, I'm Getting Nothing for Christmas. I I know that song very well. You know that? Yes. That's cute. That's cute. Okay, now about Santos. I think he should be kept from holding any office immediately forever before they find a loophole a loophole for him to get out of it. He should forfeit any gains he acquired from his position 
And he should be looking at a, a, a fine, at least, you know, for defrauding the public. And and, 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 and impersonation and, you know, was he actually qualified to hold some positions that he might have that might have endangered the country? You know what I'm saying? He perjured himself when he took his oath. You know, he lied to the country, man. I mean, and to the guy that said he don't care as long as he do something with him. How can that man be trusted? That's crazy, man. Well, let me ask you, though, uh, Tom. So, first of all, let me ask you this. Let's say, shouldn't this be up to the public, right? Shouldn't the public have the opportunity to evaluate uh, all of Santos's pluses, all of his negatives, and come two years from now when he's up for re-election, they say, all right, well, he lied about everything, but he votes the way I want to. Maybe we'll keep him in office. Why should that be a decision that, why should that be a decision for anybody other than the public? Because if, if I mean, He's responsible. If he's not responsible law law wise, you know, according to the law, then then he's not responsible to anybody. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this should be an issue for the law. You know, that's this is. Well, I think it will be. You can bet that the U.S. Attorney's Office is going to look into this. Thank you, Fugazi Tom. Igor is in Fairfield, New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. You know, I, I watched uh, Sesame Street when I was a kid back in the '70s. They highlighted different characters over time. At one time, it was basically Kermit's show, but through, you know, agreements of merchandising, he went away. But when it comes to the count, I love the count, uh, you know, and I love the East, sort of his Eastern European kind of background. But I kind of think maybe he was a little too ethnic. I think maybe they're just kind of pushing him on the side a little bit. But I see ethnic characters, not only puppets, but humans on that show. I see Asian characters. I see Hispanic characters. Why should a uh, Romanian uh, character not have a prominent place? No, I agree with you. Listen, I'm all up for inclusion to everybody, you know. And and listen, there's been a lot of... uh, talk about that Bert and Ernie are, are two gay characters, right? Now, I, I don't see that in them, but, you know, people have brought that up. Um, but, you, you know, the, the show has become an Elmo-centric show. Like You're you right. And yeah. listen, when, when the actor who did Elmo got in, a, got in some personal trouble, they de-emphasized him for a little while as well. Uh, see, I, I remember him getting into trouble. I didn't realize that he was de-emphasized. But that's a fair point about Kermit. Uh, I haven't seen any Kermit either. And I, uh, I, my thinking was that Kermit was just too busy with his work with the Muppets. And maybe he didn't have the time necessary to devote to Sesame Street that he used to. So, uh, but that, that's interesting. You know, you, you go into different, um, you know, different flavors of the day. With different characters. That's a fair point. 800-848-9222. Tony is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tony. Hello, Brooklyn. How are you, Frank? Great. What's on your mind? My second time caller. First time wasn't so good, but I'll give it another chance. Okay. So Welcome back. <laughs> I told you a corny joke. You didn't laugh, and then you yelled at me half the time. So I, uh, I said, that's it for him. But then I caught that uh, Santos... Uh, segment and I caught my interest, so I wanted to chime in on it. Wonderful. Well, do we have a sound effect for second time callers, Matt Blaze? No, we don't. Okay. All right, Tony. Well, the the floor is yours. We got about a minute. <laughs> no, I, I think um, you know a couple of things that were said. I, I feel that he should uh, retain the seat right, and just let the people decide in two years. Yeah, I mean it's you know buys remorse, not. Uh, 
doesn't apply in this uh, situation because I feel like you know, it's up it's up to the voter, it's up to whoever to do the vetting or whatever it is. And if if honesty is to be a prerequisite to get a, a political job, uh, that's right. There'll be nobody in Congress, Tony. Um, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think he should be seated. I don't think he should be expelled. We'll see what happens. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. There are so many great um, Christmas movies out there. And we always talk about great Christmas movies. Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, the list goes on and on. But some more modern films like um, uh, the, the Family Stone. I mean, there's just a ton of very, very good Christmas movies out there. But there are not as many great Hanukkah movies. I'm not saying there aren't some, but it's it's much more difficult to find the common, the, you know, a, a common Hanukkah movie than it is to find a Christmas movie on the Hallmark Channel. Well, here is an interesting plot for a Hanukkah movie that I came across. As Hanukkah approaches... A young rabbi's daughter named Leah is feeling disconnected from her faith and her community. She's always grown up in a religious household and has always followed the traditions of her father's faith. But she feels like she's missing something. Meanwhile, a non-Jewish mailman named Max is struggling with his own sense of isolation. He's always felt like an outsider in his community and has never really belonged anywhere. And as Leah and Max cross paths, they begin to form a friendship. Despite their differences... They find that they have a lot in common and enjoy spending time together. As Hanukkah approaches, Leah invites Max to celebrate the holiday with her family. At first, Max is hesitant to accept the invitation, but he ultimately decides to give it a try. He's welcomed into Leah's family and is touched by the warmth and joy of the holiday. As he learns more about Hanukkah and its traditions, Max begins to feel a sense of connection and belonging that he never experienced before. In the end, Leah and Max's friendship helps them both find a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives. They learn that the true spirit of Hanukkah is about connection, community, and acceptance, and they're both forever changed by their experience. Doesn't that sound like a great Hanukkah film? Could be on the Hallmark Channel or something? Well, that Hanukkah film has not been produced yet. That's a synopsis for a would-be Hanukkah film. Now, you know me. You know I'm a sucker for time travel movies. Every time travel. All you have to do, if you want me to see a motion picture, I don't care if it's a comedy, a drama, animated, CGI, whatever. I don't care if it's great or just terrible. 
All you have to do is say there's something about time travel in this movie, and I am glued. Glued. So if I'm wanting to watch a Hanukkah movie, I might want to watch something like this. In the year 165 B.C., Judah Maccabee and his army are celebrating their victory over the Greek army and the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. However, as the festivities come to an end, Judah is mysteriously transported to the future, where he finds himself in the midst of a modern-day Hanukkah celebration. At first, Judah is confused and disoriented by the strange new world he finds himself in. But with the help of a kind-hearted young woman named Rachel, hello, he begins to adjust to his new surroundings. As they celebrate Hanukkah together, Judah and Rachel discover that they have a strong connection. However, their relationship is complicated by the fact that Judah is a time traveler and must eventually return to his own time. Despite the challenges they face, Judah and Rachel are able to find love and happiness during Hanukkah. In the end, Judah returns to his own time, but not before leaving a lasting impact on the future and reminding Rachel of the true meaning of Hanukkah, hope, resilience, and the power of faith. Now, that's my type of Hanukkah film. Neither of those two films have been produced yet. I hope they will be. They both sound great. Do you know who wrote the synopsis for those two films? That wasn't written by a person. That was written by artificial intelligence. The synopsis, the two synopses that I just read you as as a an outline for a film about Hanukkah on the Hallmark Channel was written by OpenAI's chat GPT chatbot. That was written not by a person, but by a computer. That that's pretty good, right? It's pretty good. Um, Chatbot has now been made public. And this is, it's been made public this week. You want to talk about life-altering moments. You want to talk about moments in history where everything is going to be different. You remember how um, I said I didn't think the invention of sliced bread was that big of a deal? Clearly I'm in the minority because everyone seems to mark the whole history of innovation by the invention of sliced bread. Everyone always talks about the moon landing. Oh, they can land a man on the moon, but they can't put something decent on cable, whatever. What we've seen this week in the expansion of artificial intelligence to be used by the public is a game changer. It is a game changer in every single respect. It's a game changer for journalists. It's a game changer for academia. It's a game changer for those of us in the media. I didn't want to tell you this, but I actually have not been on the radio for the last 80 minutes. What you have been hearing on this show is not Frank Morano, but an artificial intelligence designed to sound like Frank Morano. If you're wondering why I was not a little more quick-witted or a little uh, more entertaining or a little more intelligent, or if you thought, oh, you're wondering, hey, why is Frank interesting all of a sudden? That guy Tony in Brooklyn called in, and uh, he uh, I didn't remember any of his previous call. You know why? Because that wasn't me. That was a computer. 
That was AI. The point is, AI is now accessible to everyone. This is an epochal moment in the history of human civilization. So Jake Wasserman from The Forward, he just he just gave this chat bot, which I think everybody can get for $4 or something. It just gave him a simple instruction. Write me a plot synopsis of a Hallmark movie about Hanukkah starring a rabbi's daughter and a non-Jewish mailman. That was the first uh, plot that I read. The second one was, write me a synopsis of a Hallmark movie, rom- uh, ho- excuse me, a Hallmark holiday romantic comedy about Hanukkah involving a time-traveling Maccabee who visits the future. That was the prompt, and it came up with that. We have seen what we can do in the world of art with AI art. I just gave you a sample of writing. How soon, and this is why, honestly, and people are going to think I'm joking about this, but I'm not. I am becoming really convinced that we are living in a computer simulation. Because how soon do you think it is before you can give some sort of AI an instruction and it can make a whole film? How soon do you think it is until you can give an AI uh, an instruction and it can make a whole series of films? Through artificial intelligence. How soon do you think it is before, um, you know, you can give AI a, um, you know, a, a an instruction and it hosts three hours of a radio show? That might be easier in some cases than with others, right? I mean, um, with, uh, with some conservative radio talk show hosts, all you'd have to program that computer to say over and over again is uh, Biden is brain dead, the Democrats are socialists, and Trump rules. Uh, that would be indistinguishable from a lot of what you hear on some other shows. This is, on the one hand, very scary. Um, we've talked about the dangers of AI before. On the other hand, this opens up a world of potential. Let's examine some of the questions here uh, with respect to AI, um, because this is so incredibly fascinating. So this um, the world has responded to this chat GPT, they call it. And initially, everyone was laughing about this because basically I think most people were expecting kind of essays, paragraphs that were the equivalent of the AI art that we've been creating. But now the world has gone from laughing at this to potentially being very scared. So um, OpenAI's chatbot, it remixes words into persuasive imitations of human expression and even style. In the days after OpenAI put ChatGPT out for free use, oh, it is free, I guess. I thought it was $4. I guess it's free. I'm going to have to download it. More than a million users began finding ways to have fun with it. Now, a growing chorus of experts believes it's too good at passing for human. Its capacity for generating endless quantities of authentic seeming text has people afraid that this could trigger a trust meltdown, a shakeup in the online information business, along with a likely flood of misinformation and spam is just the start of the impact. 
Now, just imagine all the things that you could do this, or you could do this with this. You could have it write a whole article about why um, you, a losing candidate actually won the election. And then that gets spread on social media all around the world a thousand times. And people are actually persuaded by this persuasive article. Chat GPT's ability to blur the line between human and machine authorship of essays, of movies, of anything really, uh, could wreak havoc overnight with norms across every discipline in the world. As people hand over the heart, I, you know, had, had this come out a week earlier, I could have had it write my New Year's Eve Eve email. Um, as people hand over the hard work of composing their thoughts to AI tools. Now, you know who's terrified? High school and college instructors. They have always had to battle plagiarism and ghostwritten turn papers. But chat GPT. And the likelihood that it will be followed by even more advanced AI, it threatens to make this problem even worse. So education is where chat GPT's disruption will land first. But any discipline or business that's built on writing or text is in the blast zone here. Think law, think entertainment, think science, think history, think media. The exact same set of concerns has arisen in the world of images, thanks to the image-generating AI program. So some people are saying, um, Paul Kudrowski, who's a venture investor and a longtime Internet analyst, said this, shame on open AI for launching this pocket nuclear bomb without restrictions into an unprepared society. He wrote that on Twitter. A virus has been released into the wild with no concern for the consequences. I have to tell you, I, I am at the same time excited and terrified by this because I think this opens a lot of possibilities open, uh, but I think we're getting closer and closer to Skynet taking over the world, like in the Terminator films. I'm not joking in the least. AI companies, including this company, OpenAI, they're working on schemes that could essentially watermark machine-generated texts. Uh, There's a venture capitalist named Fred Wilson who foresees the use of cryptographic signatures to verify a document's origin and and, uh, history. But for now, these remedies, these solutions are just ideas while ChatGPT is up and running. And there's this intense online debate over ChatGPT among technologists, among investors, among critics – And there's a range of warnings over its failings. Here is a YouTuber talking about one of the benefits of ChatGPT. You can use it as a personal writer that is available 24-7. It's as well educated as is the internet. And it can use various writing styles. But let me show you this in practice. So let's say you're at work and your boss gave you an extra task and you don't have the time to complete it without neglecting other tasks. Instead of tediously writing up by email and checking it multiple times so it's polite and well-written, simply say, write me a business email to my boss that tells him that the new task that I receive requires me to give up other projects. And look at that, perfectly structured, polite, and to the point. But maybe we don't want to email, but a WhatsApp message. So let's say now write it in one sentence. 
This personal writer you can also use for essay, blog articles, or even reports if you feed it some of the information that you came up with. And best of all, it's really good at the English language, so there will be no mistakes in there. When it comes to grammar and vocab, always double check the info because sometimes it can mess up. On uh, a user named Met on YouTube, who's also a senior software engineer, talked about why ChatGPT is... And if you want to weigh in on this, you can. 800-848-9222. But this user and software engineer talked about why ChatGPT is bad. The main reason I made this video is because of how terrifying ChatGPT is in its ability to provide... to make knowledge workers obsolete. This means that if you are a knowledge worker... You have five years from now, basically, to find a way to make yourself valuable in a post-GPT world, or you have to find some way to accumulate massive amounts of wealth until we reach the point where GPT has made knowledge workers obsolete, and then you can just live very frugally on your existing portfolio. So um, this is wild. The conversational fluency of this AI, ChatGPT, it masks its inability to to distinguish between fact and fiction. It often looks like an undergrad confidently answering a question for which it didn't attend any lectures. Now, OpenAI has tried to limit the potential for ChatGPT to say things that are blatantly offensive or discriminatory. But users have found a lot of holes in these restraints. Uh, these restraints. Uh, but that's probably what OpenAI wanted to happen in this public trial so that it could improve the product. Generative AIs like ChatGPT learn from the patterns of the text that they ingest and the corpus of human expression is full of all sorts of failings. And it's on the makers of this AI technology to scrub the data they feed their algorithms and limit potential harms to society. But much of the industry has chosen, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to rush into this, try and make as much money as we can, and damn the consequences. But you heard it. You've got five years, and then... It's over, Johnny. It's over! The, um, with... Thoughtful deployment, the tools for something like ChatGPT could end up freeing us from tediousness, the drudgery of uh, writing out, um, I don't know, book reports, right? I mean, you know, uh, Kenneth, for instance, and maybe sometimes Alex does it as well, but I think it's primarily Kenneth. Kenneth writes a summary of what's going to be on our podcast every day. Well, there's no reason ChatGPT can't do that now. So... On the one hand, that could free Kenneth up to do something else, like help me book guests. On the other hand, how many other jobs can be replaced by this chat GPT? AI could help students with writing, they say, the the proponents of this, the way calculators help them with math. That's an argument made by sociologist and New York Times columnist Zainab Chafeki. Writing is hard, and the more writing AI does for us, the fewer people will practice this. I'll give you a perfect example. When I was in elementary school, I was a brilliant speller, a champion speller. I would win spelling bees when I was in fourth grade, fifth grade. I can't spell anything now. I can't even spell my own name. You know why? Because of spell check. Spell check has made me 
such a poor speller because I don't need to know how to spell anymore. The computer spells for me. Um, When I was a child, I memorized phone number after phone number. I could still tell you my next-door neighbor Michael Carrera's phone number. I could still tell you my next-door neighbor Brian Silverstein's phone number. I still have uh, my mom's phone number in my brain, my dad's phone number, uh, Justin Jackalo, uh, a chum of mine from uh, summer camp. I could tell you his phone number. I don't want to name these phone numbers because I don't want you to call these numbers. I'm not sure how many of them are still active, but believe me, I can name them. Uh, my wife, if you stopped her, she can't tell you my phone number because phones have made it. You don't need to remember anyone's phone number. You're carrying them with you all the time. So I am concerned about what this writing device is going to do to our ability to write. This could set off a downward spiral in our collective capacity to expand knowledge with a dwindling supply of new human creations available to train the next AI. Worst case is that uh, humanity could get stuck in an AI-powered rut. Worst, worst case is we may see something like what happened in Star Trek, the motion picture. You remember what happened to the Voyager probe in Star Trek, the motion picture? It became V'ger. Where is Lieutenant Ilea? That unit no longer functions. I've been given its form to more readily communicate with the carbon-based units infesting Enterprise. Carbon-based units? Humans, Ensign Perez. So I got an email from a professor yesterday, and he shared with me, I don't know if he wants his uh, memo uh, outed to everybody, but he is a very bright guy, and he shared with me a memo that he wrote to his colleagues. And he said, we are never going to know if an essay, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, if an essay is written by a student or this AI chatbot. How frightening is that? This is upending every aspect of society. Not five years from now. Right now. Right now. Um, I'm going to share, by the way, the um, other Hanukkah movies that were written by this AI chatbot. If you want to read them, uh, there's there's a bunch. They went through about five of them. You can go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's uh, facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. Uh, There's a lot of other aspects to this. Uh, For instance, Google is developing an AI app to decipher poor handwriting. Um, The rise of this chat GPT capable of answering questions in natural English in real time That is going to change the world somehow. The question is how. On Semaphore, one of the writers uh, that I read there wrote, the Dynamite Internet Newsletter, um, they have some analogies from history. They say the invention of the freezer entirely destroyed the ice-harving industry. But the camera didn't destroy the art industry because human-made art remained a status symbol. The invention of the tractor vastly reduced the number of farmers needed to produce food. Might we need only a few journalists and authors tending to the AI writing farms? That's what Semaphore is asking. Things are going to get very weird very soon, but we don't know how. Where do you think this leaves us? 
Curious what your take is on the dangers of plagiarism in academia. I'm curious in terms of what you think this does to humanity, the future of writing, the future of the workforce. Um, tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. There's a lot of other aspects of this. We could do just hours on this, but I, I, I realize, you know, that. I don't know. People listen to this show to hear other things as well. We're going to get to your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Thomas, who is celebrating her birthday today, she turned uh, 80 years old today. 80 years old, Carla Thomas. Isn't that wild? Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we are covering. Let me begin with um, Tom in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, hi, Frank. I'd like to say, is it, uh, you mentioned about uh, artificial intelligence, was that really you talking? Were you were you kidding at the moment? It was really me talking. Yes. Oh, that no, I don't mean that. But you had said prior to that, you said something about. Uh, you said you didn't believe you didn't believe that it was. You thought it was me, but it wasn't. Well, it, Tom, I'm going to leave that to you to decipher. Well, anyway, listen, I constantly am getting bombarded by advertisements, and I think they're coming from Chase Bank. They're selling all kinds of these annuities or whatever, and uh, I told the guy, uh, the the last thing they were selling was was something for uh, some uh, stuff, and I had said to the guy, look, I only uh, have an apartment. I don't even own the doorknob in here. They, they keep. They, they well, who keep, owns the doorknob? Well, <laughs> the landlord, obviously. Oh. But what I'm getting at is that what they're doing over here is uh, they're trying to sell something. And I said, look, I'm not in the market for anything. And I constantly get the same advertisement. 
sometimes I think it could be like an artificial voice coming oh. at me. Well, that's interesting. It could be. It could be, uh, Tom. It uh, certainly could be. I will say this, Tom. I don't think as far as artificial intelligence comes – I don't think there will ever be an AI algorithm that's created that can duplicate your your phone calls. I think you are safe for the time being. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. You know, Frank, the first two things I thought about was that uh, you could have a lot of time watching Sesame Street. And uh, Johnny Cash is wringing his hands saying, look at all the money I'm going to save in salaries. But when you really think about it, the AI is nonsense because it, it, it either regurgitates facts or it comes out with fantasies. There's this Hanukkah movies. I mean, any writer could have wrote that nonsense. There's, well, there's I no know, I know. But the difference is those writers that any writer that could have written it, it would have been a human that that wrote that. And now no, I, you I, just have to give uh, just like with a college essay, you just have to give a prompt uh, or a, a question and it will write in response to it. Yes, but it, it writes off of off, off facts. What it can do, and I use use an example, uh, it, it can't create your witticisms. It can't create recreate your life experiences. Uh, it can't create the the way you butcher the English language on certain words, uh, you know, off the top of its head. Uh, it's just so. I mean, you're safe for a number of years, Frank. I wouldn't worry about it. But uh, I, 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 I really think, uh, and when you said about essays. It's all the regurgitation of facts. Put the essays together. It's, there's, there's no human experience in that because if there was, they would be able to tell if the essay was for, uh, false or not. Interesting. Well, that's a good point, Neil. Thank you. 800-848-9222. So I uh, did see on uh, Saturday or Sunday, I don't know, over the weekend when I was up early and my wife was still sleeping, I got to watch another one of these A&E biographies you know, A&E has a biography channel, and they have all sorts of great biographies about everybody, about movie stars, about uh, historical figures, about uh, politicians, about gangsters, and about pro wrestlers. They did a whole season, uh, a whole series last year called WWE Legends, and they did little mini documentaries, little biographies of different wrestlers. You had uh, Roddy Piper. Um, you had uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. You had the Macho Man Randy Savage. You had a bunch of uh, Shawn Michaels, Mick Foley. Really well done stuff. I watched all of them last year because they were all wrestlers that I was interested in, except for Booker T. That was the only one that I didn't watch just because you know I, I was never really that into Booker T. I really I started watching it, but I found myself really not caring because I was not into it. So it was so popular this series of A&E documentaries that they did, that they launched a new season. I told you about the first episode that I watched from the new season about Bill Goldberg. The second episode was about two female wrestlers. I think they're female wrestlers that I was not even familiar with. The 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 Bella Twins or the Something Twins. I don't, I don't know who they are, so I didn't watch that. But I did watch the third episode about not only a former wrestler, but a former Olympian. And the only Olympic gold medalist ever to compete in the world of pro wrestling, the one and only Kurt Angle. Brock, believe it or not, I am the real people's champion. Everybody knows it. And you say my title reign is coming to an end? Well, I got news for you, pal. It's just beginning. 
Kurt Angle, if you don't follow pro wrestling, he was an Olympic gold medalist. He was in the uh, freestyle wrestling, and he was very big in the world of pro wrestling for, I want to say, almost 10 years, right? And um, then he tried to, you know, his career waned, and then he came back, and he had some success. He is a 13-time world champion, if you include his um, his time in the WWE, in TNA, and in Japan. He's the only pro wrestler in history to have won the WWE Championship, the WWE World Heavyweight Championship, the WCW Championship, the TNA World Heavyweight Championship, and the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. He's also the only person to have been the king of the ring and the king of the mountain, which is TNA. Um and also the only person to have held both the triple crown, which is all the belts, in the WWE and the TNE and uh, TNA. He was a great wrestler and a great performer. He had been named, uh, he's not only in the WWE Hall of Fame, but he'd been named the pro wrestler of the decade in the 2000s. And you can easily understand why. See, he was a gifted athlete. You have to be in order to be an Olympian. He won a gold medal at the Olympics with a broken neck. I want you to understand that. He broke his neck during an Olympic wrestling match and still managed to win. Do you know the degree of not just athleticism, but toughness that you have to do in order to do that? Well, this is a fascinating, fascinating story. Even if you care nothing about pro wrestling, even if you care nothing about the sports or the Olympics— this is a fascinating human interest story. I um I never got to interview Kurt Angle, but I produced uh, an interview that Curtis had done with Kurt Angle when uh, when I was producing Curtis's show. And I knew that he was an interesting guy having been an Olympic gold medalist and then a pro wrestler. I had no idea of the kind of demons that he had been battling. He his sister became a drug addict. And I don't want to give too much away because this is worth watching. And he lost his sister to drugs. Do you remember that Steve Carell movie with uh, Channing Tatum, Foxcatcher, about uh, John DuPont, who went a little crazy and hosted all the wrestlers on his uh, property there and sponsored the American wrestling team? Well, Kurt Angle, and I didn't know this, he lived there. He worked. He was part of that John, that DuPont crew. And uh, one of his friends was the Channing Tatum character in that movie. And that was fascinating. The story of him dealing with his sister, fascinating. So then he becomes a pro wrestler, breaks his neck as a pro wrestler. And he had seen what happened with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stone Cold Steve Austin broke his neck. He was out for a year. Being out for a year as a pro wrestler could be potentially career-ending because, let's face it, you know, when you're a pro wrestler, you don't exactly have a long lifespan in terms of your career. So Stone Cold Steve Austin hooks him up with his doctor, He doesn't want to go that route. He chooses to go to another doctor and pursues another type of surgery. He's out instead of for 12 to 15 months. He's out for six weeks. Comes back. Breaks his neck again. Breaks his neck four times within a year. And becomes, because he was prescribed prescription pain medication, becomes a drug addict. And then becomes a drug addict and an alcoholic, leads to the demise of his family, leads to really kind of the end of his pro wrestling career. And to listen to this story 
and to listen to the interviews with his wife, the interviews that he does, the interviews with his family members. It is an incredible comeback story. So I really recommend this. I thought the Goldberg um, documentary was good. This documentary from the second season of WWE Legends on the A&E channel is even better. I mean, it's far better. It's, it's really an incredible, incredible story of an incredible human being, um, Kurt Angle, who seems to be doing great now. And I, I want to get him on this show because he's a, a gifted storyteller. By the way, speaking of gifted storytellers, I want to give I want to thank Jeffrey Lichtman who is uh, somebody that's been a guest on this show many times. And Jeffrey is someone that I turned into a talk show host. There's a lot of people that I turned into talk show hosts. Most of them would never give me credit. There's a lot of talk show hosts that I'm mentoring and working with and coaching now who you don't even know. I don't talk about it, and they don't talk about it, and that's fine. But I heard Jeffrey Lichtman tell a story about, I think it was about... um, Jeffrey Lickman was a criminal defense attorney, and I heard him tell a story about calling, having lunch with another criminal defense attorney. And it's all he did is tell the story about the two of them having lunch. And I said after he told that story, this is someone that can be a great talk show host. And I was able to get him some opportunities to fill in. Eventually, he became a, a substitute for Ron Kuby, a co-host with Curtis. Now he's doing his own podcast, which is very popular. It's called Beyond the Legal Limit. He comes on with me regularly. And he gave me a shout-out in this week's edition of his Beyond the Legal Limit podcast. And I had Frank Morano. He was the producer of the radio show at, at, at my disposal. He now has his own really wonderful radio show on WABC called The Other Night of Midnight. It's on like in the middle of the night. It's ridiculous. They put him on in the middle of the night, and he should be on during the day. Well, that was really nice for for Jeffrey to say anything nice about anyone is rare. He's kind of – the older Jeffrey has gotten, he's become increasingly more and more negative about people, about everything, really. Uh, But uh, but that was nice that even though he got the name of the show wrong, it's for him to say something nice about the show. But – and people should know I really enjoy being on at this time of night or this time of morning. But that was nice that he gave a shout-out. But it did remind me the most recent edition – of the Racket Report podcast has been posted. I have a feeling that this episode is going to be the most downloaded we've ever done. I have a feeling that it is going to be the most talked about we've ever had. I have not. uh, It's on. You can uh, search it on iTunes or Spotify. Just search the Racket Report with Frank Morano. Comes right up. You should subscribe. And I speak with Anthony Ruggiano Jr. He was a mafia associate. He was an associate of the Gambino family. His father was a big hitman with the Gambino family. This is fascinating, a fascinating discussion. I'm going to tweet the link to it after the show. I don't want to do it now because I I don't want you to stop listening to this show to listen to this podcast. But you can uh, check it out at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O, Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. I'm going to tweet it uh, right after the show. We spoke about him killing his own brother-in-law. Listen to this. This is just a snippet. The conversation's about an hour. And he was very candid 
about killing his own brother-in-law. I know um, it was very well publicized about eight years ago when you were ultimately sentenced by uh, Judge Jack Weinstein. Headline, mobster who had in-law killed gets off with time served. And if you read the tabloid coverage of this t- of this at the time, your, essentially your prison sentence was just three days for helping to kill your own brother-in-law, even though your brother-in-law's family was in court asking Judge Weinstein for the harshest possible penalty. Um, What do you think of that? Obviously, you uh, don't want to be in prison, and I don't think anybody would begrudge you that. But what do you think if you were someone else looking at your situation? Here you have uh, a family that uh, doesn't have their father around, at least in part because of you. And instead of serving time in prison for the crime that you committed, you're free. Uh, how How would you view that if you were someone other than Anthony Ruggiano? I would probably view it the same way they viewed it, that it's it's terrible. You know, um, I feel terrible for them. Um, I would feel probably the same way they feel, you know, but I, I look, I'm looking at it from a different point of view because even though he was my brother-in-law, he knew the deal. I'm not saying anybody deserves to die. Don't, that's not what I'm saying. But he knew the deal going in that this was Fat Andy's daughter, and he was told – by numerous people to stay away from him, and he still chose to go with her. He was no angel. He was a killer himself. He committed murders. He was he was a dangerous person, and um, you know, and and he did something that he knew he shouldn't have done, and he paid the ultimate price for it. And I wish I could go back and and change it and not and 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 stop it. But I, I... if you think that's interesting, that's nothing. That is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to that interview. Uh, just uh, search The Racket Report and hit the subscribe button. Uh, you should also, by the way, even if you usually listen to this program live, you should search uh, The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano and um, hit the subscribe button. Uh, a, an, a caller or an emailer informed me yesterday that our show is now the 78th most listened to entertainment podcast in the whole country. In the whole country. And I think we're like number... 38 in uh, Singapore or something. I don't know. I don't, I, we're, we're, we chart well in the other countries as well. But in the United States, we're the 78th most listened to entertainment podcast. That's pretty good. So I said, let me go on there and see what reviews people are leaving. We're going to go through the mail, maybe, um, maybe up next or maybe a little later. This is what some person uh, wrote. I don't know who this is, but they wrote, and I think they really nailed this show. I really enjoy that this show is sort of like the weather wherever where I live. If you don't like it, wait five minutes. It will change. The subjects and insights Frank's bring, Frank brings to the table are fun and enlightening. I originally started listening to hear tales of the strange, UFOs, etc. By the way, we're doing a whole UFO hour next hour, so I prepare to turn up the volume. Even if you're not interested in UFOs, listen to this because there are very significant national defense aspects to this, as I thought the whole show was going to be that. However... The sprinkling of such items is enough amongst his fun and interesting human interest stories, along with occasional political news. The aspect of hearing the caller's viewpoints and tips is especially fun. I listen live when I can, 
but I always catch up on the podcast. So that's nice. A lot of other people saying nice things. Some other people saying not so nice things. But uh, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast. Let me just read you one other review from October. Our New York area listeners will get a kick out of this. This is the subject, okay? One star they gave me. Subject, Frank the Moron. I was a fan of his, no, no, excuse me. I was a fan of his until this moron said on the radio that Alvin Bragg should not be fired if Lee Zeldin becomes governor. It, what an idiot. That's the sentence. It, what an idiot. I am always amazed and continually impressed, by the way, I'll finish reading you this comment, that the people that find fault with me are almost totally illiterate. And, you know, the only conclusion that I've been able to come to is that if you I'm not talking about if you don't like me, but if you really dislike me, you're you're a total idiot. I have to say this. You are a total illiterate buffoon who has an IQ below triple digits. If you don't really enjoy this show, Um, when the fool made that statement, I turned him off and will never listen to his show again. Uh, That's from H.C. Grace, 1966. Well, H.C. Grace, 1966, losing you, unfortunately, is a case of addition through subtraction. I am happy to lose you as a listener, and we'll keep the listenership of this show to people who have an IQ above triple digits and are able to enunciate commentaries, thoughts, reviews of radio shows and podcasts without resorting to sentence fragments. 800-848-9222. Let me say a little Corey in Rockland. Hello, Corey. Yes, Frank. How you doing? Good. Um, so I, sorry, I had to take you off speaker. Uh, I just wanted to comment about the, um, the AI stuff and how I think um, – I heard about the uh, the you know where you give the you give a plot or you give a couple of words or whatever and then uh, the AI makes a, a, a plotted story and and all that and I think uh, I see that this is the way the world is going with all of this technology and so many people putting so much greatness into this technology which is uh, scary in my opinion um, I think you see a lot of craziness with people becoming so famous too, so easily, uh, through social media, um, you know, influencers and all these things that we never had before. And I think it's very dangerous at the end of the day. Um, you know, a lot of this happens and they tout this, uh, technology to most people, which buy into it because they say, Oh, it's going to help with spelling and, you know, uh, people to succeed who never had the opportunity because, you know, like you were saying at one point, um, imagine a, you're writing a letter to your boss or you need a promotion. It's going to write, you know, all this stuff that it's going to make you look like what you're really not. You're really subsidizing a human being. And, uh, and I think that's a problem because although is I, I, you know, I, I, I care about people, not everybody's created equal in the sense, and it really uh, removes people from shining, uh, uh, standing out, because you're never going to really know, truthfully, 
who the smart people or I, I don't want to use it like that, like people are dumb and smart, but I think you understand where I'm trying to go with it is um, removing people from who they really are and 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 you get fooled and you're gonna you're gonna get a lot of uh a lot of people that have positions that don't deserve them well i I hear you Corey, and i think you're exactly right i think that is a very real problem Uh, and uh, i think uh, that is a big cause for concern well said Corey. i couldn't have said it any better myself even if i was a byproduct of artificial intelligence thank you 800-848-9222 we'll continue with your calls straight ahead other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. To see Pa-rum-pa-pum-pum Our finest gifts we bring Pa-rum-pa-pum-pum Rum-pa-pum-pum Rum-pa-pum-pum Peace on earth Can it be Years from now Perhaps we'll see I love this song. Uh, This is Bing Crosby and uh, David Bowie in one of the oddest Christmas duets of all time. You ever look at the video of this? I may link to it on um, on the YouTube on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Morano fan. You got to watch the whole thing because it's it's really a um, a bizarre premise. So. uh, David Bowie meets Bing Crosby. This is from 45 years ago, and uh, kind of the beginning of David uh, Bowie's career and sort of the end of uh, Bing Crosby. And um, David Bowie basically uh, says, uh, oh, I'm a singer, you know, and uh, Bing Crosby's sitting there in his sweater. I-, I don't know why he's at Bing Crosby's house at Christmas time, but he says, oh, I'm a singer. And um, uh, Cro- uh, Bowie says that, and Crosby says, well... You know, I sing a little bit myself. And then they get to uh, this duet. It's just wonderful. If you want to hear the whole song or watch the video that I'm uh, talking about, you can go to Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. You know what I just did uh, during the um, during the commercial break that we just took? How long was that commercial break? 90 seconds? I, uh, I had them, I had the uh, chat bot, which I now signed up for, it is free, write a treatment for a comedy film about my relationship with my wife, okay? It did so in 60 seconds. It wrote a five-act treatment for a film called The Late Shift. I'll just read you the first act. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. Uh, Frank is a lovable but eccentric overnight radio talk show host who is obsessed with casino gambling, cheese, and pro wrestling. He has a loyal following of listeners, but his personal life is a bit of a mess. He's always running late struggling to pay his bills. By the way, I didn't tell it any of this. And has a tendency to get into wacky situations. (laughs) I'm not kidding. This this AI just wrote this. Um, This is really a game changer. A game changer. Um, 
All right. I don't know where to begin. Danny on Long Island has been holding a while. Hello, Danny. Thank you, Frank. Sure. You're welcome. Can, a comment about George Santos and his inflated resume. Wouldn't Richard Blumenthal be held to those same standards? Yes. I mean, obviously, I mentioned Dick Blumenthal before. Uh, you don't have the financial aspect of things with Blumenthal. Uh, and, you know, I think the problem for Santos is going to be explaining where did he get this $700,000 from that he lent his own campaign. You didn't have that issue with Blumenthal. You also didn't have him, you know, Santos admitted apparently to his role in this check fraud in Brazil. So um, it's not good to do a stolen valor situation, as was the case with Blumenthal. But it's not it's not a crime. Maybe it should be. But, um, you know, I think the the criminal implications are potentially the the bigger issue for Santos. Yes. And the criminal aspect with the, with the money is uh, a personality definer. But when you're talking about being in Vietnam and you actually had many deferments, and you spent years getting deferments, that tells you what kind of an American you might I completely want to agree with you. I completely agree with you. Good point, Danny. Coming up next hour, the National Defense Authorization Act has done some interesting things in the field of UAPs. We'll get into it. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. It's no secret I have a great interest in the world of what we used to call UFOs. Now we call them UAPs, Unexplained Aerial Phenomenon. You know who else has a great interest in the world of UAPs? Congress. Congress has recently made some changes to how UAPs are reported and a lot of other things that the government does with respect to UFOs. Why? Was this all done to placate UFO conspiracy theorists like me? Or is there something more here? Well, a guy that has studied this, written about this, and researched this for quite some time and is more knowledgeable about it than most is uh, Douglas Dean Johnson, a researcher and writer on UAP-related activity in Congress and the executive branch. Douglas, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio. It's good to be with you again, Frank. Remind us, uh, Douglas, what sparked your initial interest in this subject? How long have you been following this? Well, Frank, my interest goes back to the 1960s when I was in high school. Um, I'm 71 years old now. It's been intermittent. There were long periods when I pretty much tuned it out because there didn't seem to be much new happening. I had certain convictions on the matter. But in the last five years or so, I've been able to turn a lot of attention to it again. And uh, on certain facets of it, I'm I'm in a position to do uh, research and have access to some information that uh, I think is of interest to others around the country. Who seek to understand this issue better. In particular, I've been paying a lot of attention to 
what Congress is doing on this matter, some of the activity within the federal executive branch, but also some of the claims being widely disseminated um, through popular culture, through videos, podcasts, and so forth, and how they sync with mm. with the reality that I see on the ground. So you would have no uh, no difficulty, for instance, debunking a, a UFO or UAP claim that might be a little bit uh, a little bit too outlandish if the evidence doesn't support it. I, I wouldn't uh, if the evidence doesn't support it exactly. So it's not a question in my mind of whether something is outlandish or not. Um, you know, there's a, a philosopher who said, or a British biologist uh, actually. Uh, about a hundred years ago, that he, the universe is not only stranger than we imagine, but stranger than we can imagine. So we shouldn't reject anything a priori. We should examine the evidence for any type of claim or observation. Um, but there are a lot of tall tales out there, and some of them have been very lucrative for very indiv- various individuals. Others are just sort of an echo chamber. Uh, where stories get told and exaggerated around a, a kind of a self-reinforcing circuit. Um, and I think it's important to examine each of these claims, uh, give them hard scrutiny and see if they stand up uh, under that scrutiny. Before we discuss what Congress has done uh, recently, uh, there, do you believe, based on your research, that there's credible evidence to suggest that there have been UAP sightings over the years in the United States, for instance? Well, certainly there have been observations. And in my view, back to the 1940s, at least, to the World War II era, uh, and many during the 1950s and 60s, uh, by competent observers of devices uh, doing things that were not in our inventory or the inventory of any other nation on the earth. Um, And my own conclusion is that although there may be many causes of these observations, there may be many points of origin, that some of these reflect devices that we did not make. Um, now, there are obviously a lot of people who are not persuaded. They don't find this type of uh, observational evidence uh, sufficient. Um, and I am all for getting a, having a more methodical approach with hard data, instruments and and the very serious resources brought to bear on this problem which is or this issue that's been with us for at least 70 years one of the ufo stories that has gotten a lot of traction especially in recent years is the subject of a netflix documentary uh, we talked about it on the radio. I spoke with the director of the uh, of this documentary, uh, Jeremy Corbell, uh, about this. Has been the allegations about uh, Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar is someone that uh, claims to have worked at uh, Area 51, and uh, he has made a lot of claims about what he saw at Area 51, including this one back in 1989. Uh, This is a clip courtesy of KLAS-TV. They had a poster, and it looked like a commercial poster almost, like it was lithographed and you could buy it at a Kmart or something, but they were all over the place, and it had the, the disc that I coined the term the sport model was lifted off the ground about three feet at at uh, Area S4 on the dry lake there, and uh, the catch on the bottom said they're here. And uh, those are just all over the place. 
Later, he got to see the real thing. When I was let in, it was the first time I saw the sport model in the hangar sitting down, and uh, I was told they could have walked me in the front door, but they purposely wanted to walk me by it. I was told not to say anything and just keep my eyes forward and, and walk past the disc into the office area. And I did, and uh, as we went by it, I just kind of stuck my hands on it <laughs> just to run it alongside the thing. And, uh, you know, I, that, that was about the smallest time. After that, I got to see it uh, actually lift off the ground and operate. But you, you also, in between that, you saw more than one. Yeah. The hangars are all connected together, and there are large bay doors between each one. And uh, there were nine total that I saw each one being different, like they had the uh, assortment pack. Uh, based on your research, uh, Douglas, what do you make of the story of Bob Lazar? Because it has gotten so much attention and so much traction. Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I have spent uh, many hundreds of hours looking into this particular claim because it has been so widely disseminated. And in this, there was pioneering research done very early on by a man named Tom Mahood who looked into this story. He had excellent local sources, uh, and uh, his, his material is still available on the Internet. And I would commend to anybody with an interest in this case his article, Bob Lazar, from the perspective of 2018, which is easily Googled up. But to summarize, this is an example of a tall tale, uh, which has been very lucrative for some people. But each element of it, when subjected to a measure of critical scrutiny, collapses. Um, that Bob Lazar, in summary, claimed to be a, have been hired as a senior scientist for this ultra-secret program that had, in 1989, and at least a decade earlier, by his story, nine intact captive alien spacecraft, <laughs> at least one of which they were flying around. And he claimed to have personally discovered the secret of propulsion of these craft, which was an alien isotope, a heavy isotope of the element 115, which had uh, the power to defeat gravity and also churn out power like the stun, this this isotope. Um, and uh, he went to local broadcaster, George Knapp, and persuaded Knapp of this story. And Knapp put it out on TV and, uh, and it became a thing. Um, now, the real story, with, uh, which emerged under investigation, is that this was a recently bankrupt uh, high school graduate. He did not have two master's degrees from MIT and Caltech, as he claimed. He had a high school degree. He had some measure of technical skill and had worked as a low-level technician at Los Alamos, and I think briefly on the Nellis phase, but not in any high-security area. Uh, he had been involved in a number of uh, dubious enterprises. Uh, before going to nap with his story. And uh, he made a lot of claims, including claims which were checkable, like his educational background, which turned out to be totally fictitious. He was not any kind of a scientist. Um, he claimed to have a sample of this superpowered isotope that defeats gravity. That claim has been maintained now for 33 years. Uh, I saw an interview with George Knapp promoting it just this past summer. Uh, on a podcast. Um, so here's a here we have a guy who claims to have proof positive of alien technology and visitation, but the time has never been ripe to show it to anybody. Never to have a televised press conference where he hands out 
slivers of it to three or four independent laboratories under the television lights to absolutely prove alien visitation and also, of course, prove his his story. No, the time is never right. So this is a gullibility test. Um, why th these people call out for disclosure from the government. They think the government has big secrets. Maybe the government does. But here's a guy who claims to have actual physical proof, a super-powered alien isotope, but he won't show it to you. That's a gullibility test. And uh, yet millions of people have been presented with a very cleaned-up version of this story. They don't know all the contradictions that have been uh, polished off the story by George Knapp and others over the years. And so it ha it's a thing and a very lucrative enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, this is an impedance to actual serious investigation of this phenomena. It's one of the things that's deterred government agencies and serious scientists. Uh, they don't want to get into this morass of urban myths and uh, popular culture claims of this type. Um, they don't want to be associated with it, and I can't blame them. Uh, so the the why would Bob Lazar, for instance, be sticking with this and pushing this if there are so many verifiable holes in his story? W what does he have to gain from this? Fame, money? Well, early on, he made very strenuous. <laughs> that's one of the things you hear from the Bob Lazar promoters. He's not profited from this. Right. That's, that's one of the things that, that that has been told to me by uh, some this of the Bob nonsense. Lazar pr this is, promoters. This is nonsense. Okay. You, there's documented records. I've published it and others. In the early days, he made strenuous efforts. He had a bidding war for the movie rights to his story, which was won by New Line Pictures in uh, 1991, I think. This is all spread on the record. Anybody can look it up. But it's not part of the Nap Corbell narrative. It's not in their so-called documentary. That's a polished version. Uh, you know, and after he'd ridden this for a while, and I mean, there was more. He had his own UFO radio show for a while. He licensed a, a model of the scout craft with Tester. There was a lot of monetary stuff. But after he'd sort of milked it for a while, he went on to the next thing, which was running an illegal brothel uh, in, in Las Vegas. I mean, there are legal brothels in Nevada, but this wasn't one. He set this up and cut holes in the wall to, to shoot pictures and so forth. And he was caught, arrested, and convicted of a felony. This is like a year after the Knapp revelation. Um, and there's a whole story on that, which is fully documented. And there's much more. <laughs> He's had a number of run-ins with the law since then. We don't have time to go into mm. all of that. So this is not the story people have been presented right. with. Right. No, certainly not. It, certainly but it's, not. All prov it's all provable, and anybody – I mean, no, no congressional staffer, for example, is going to let his boss get within you know, a mile of this because it's clearly bogus. Um, and yet, you know, there's millions of people who believe it because they've only heard the polished, marketized version. And this isn't the only example of that kind of thing. I'm just spending a lot of time sure. on it because it's one that has this huge audience right now. It did go away for a long time. And then after UFOs became a thing again these last five years because of the New York Times story in 2017 and so forth, they went and got him and persuaded him with some difficulty to once again come forward. But only Lazar uh, and his promoters never engage with informed critics. There's never any sustained questioning, anything approaching a debate. They go on where where the uh, 
platforms in which they're only going to get softball questions or people who have only heard their version of the story. None of them is going to debate somebody like me or Tom Hood or others who actually have delved into these claims. But I, I boil it down to this. Okay, show us the superpowered alien isotope, Bob Lazar. Hold a televised press conference. Hand out some slivers to six, five, four independent labs. Make one or two of them foreign. If, if those lab reports come back and say this is something exotic, we've never seen anything like this, it's not of human origin, I will eat, live streamed on the internet, the hardcover copy of Bob Lazar's autobiography. I pledge this to your listeners. <laughs> on, the, on the day that two independent lab reports come back and validate that this material is of exotic nature. They've been making this claim for 33 years. Put up or shut up. Uh, that's interesting. If people are just tuning in, we are talking with Douglas Dean Johnson. He's a researcher and writer on UAP-related activity in Congress and the executive branch. We are going to take some of your questions throughout the hour at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. What I've been most interested in is what uh, Congress has been doing. There was a law enacted in December of 2021 uh, dealing with some changes in terms of how the government handles UFO investigations. Two of the prime movers behind that law were a bipartisan group of senators. That included Republican Senator Marco Rubio from Florida and Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. Here was Senator Gillibrand uh, speaking to the Washington Post in May on the importance of reporting UAPs. We always need air dominance to defend this country and to have UAPs that you just don't know what they are, you don't know if they're Chinese aircraft or Russian aircraft or truly unidentifiable. These are highly concerning uh, issues. And uh, I'm curious, Douglas, if you can kind of bring us up to speed uh, before the National Defense Authorization Act, what were the other recent changes that Congress has made on the UFO reporting front and on the UAP front in general? Well, for decades, uh, Congress only made occasional forays into this and pretty superficial and basically deferred to the military establishment. So there were a few hearings in the 60s and so forth, but nothing much ever came of it. After the New York Times did that story, and I think it was December of 2017, this engaged the interest of the members of Congress and their staffs, and they started. And the, and the center of this activity in Congress is the Armed Services Committees and the Intelligence Committees. So there are four committees. The House and Senate has these two committees, and the, uh, so there's four altogether. And they've been the nexus of congressional activity on this uh, on this matter. Since 2017, so they started asking more questions, pressuring the military and intelligence bureaucracies for answers. In uh, in 2019, we know now they actually instructed uh, in a classified um, instruction. They instructed the, uh, the Pentagon to set up a task force. No, that was in 2018 um, to to look into this, and they did uh, a task force centered in the Navy naval intelligence. In 2019, they put in a public language, language we could all read for the first time in the report on the Intelligence Authorization Act, instructing that they wanted a public report in the middle of 2021 on this matter. And so we got the first public report last June. Uh, that's to say June of 
2021 uh, on from the Director of National Intelligence. Now, it was pretty sketchy. They called it a preliminary assessment. Um, the unclassified versions said that there were 144 cases in recent years from military sources that they hadn't been able to identify. There was a classified version that was longer, but uh, we've only seen a highly redacted version of that that was 17 pages long. That led into uh, an expansive enactment, which I think we discussed on uh, last time I was on your show, that was in a, uh, that Senator Gillibrand was one of the uh, architects of. There were others as well. And that was enacted in December of 2021. Um, and this uh, mandated that the Pentagon would set up a dedicated office to this. They had already done so administratively, but this greatly elevated it and expanded its mission. Um, and so the Pentagon started to comply with that. They were kind of pokey early this year, and there was some dissatisfaction. Uh, um, but they started to get up to speed. They brought in, in the spring, uh, a director for this program. I was the first to report on his identity, which I, I wrote an article on in May on my blog. Um, and what's the Dr. blog, by the way, if people want to check that out? It's called Mirador, M-I-R-A-D-O-R. Uh, if you just put in Douglas Johnson, Mirador, M-I-R-A-D-O-R, um, or even Douglas Johnson UFOs, it'll probably come up. And there's about nine articles there. So I use this for my longer articles on uh, unidentified aerial phenomena or unidentified anomalous phenomena is now the term being used by the government. Um, I, so I reported on his, his selection, and then two months later, the Pentagon finally confirmed it. And he has quite an impressive resume. He is a career intelligence officer, but also a scientist who is, you know, scores of scientific papers. He's a physicist, and he's also a, what they call a level three government manager, which means he's a program manager. So he's run some big enterprises uh, in different intelligence agencies, Stratcom, um, uh, Spacecom, and so forth. He's, he's well acquainted with the government um, security components, intelligence components. Uh, and he, as I understand it, volunteered for this. Um, and that uh, may have surprised some people because here's somebody, you know, in mid-career who's got a very distinguished resume and and uh, and chooses um, to take it on this controversial matter, which there's no, it's no secret there's substantial lack of enthusiasm, to say the least, among some components of the military and intelligence bureaucracies for this subject matter. So Dr. Kirkpatrick took on this position, and uh, and he's. Um, bringing it up to speed. Um, and I think that's a very important development to have somebody of that caliber uh, who is now operating on very explicit congressional mandates. And the new bill, which the Senate just cleared last week and will be going to the president for his signature within uh, before the end of the month, further enhances the powers of this office and expands its mandates. So the law, the Gillibrand-Rubio law of a year ago, is now being beefed up further in a number of ways that we could discuss. And, and uh, Dr. Kirkpatrick is being given even a stronger mandate directly from Congress to get to the bottom of this. All right. Um, we have a number of people that are queuing up to talk with you. If people are just tuning in, we are talking with Douglas Dean Johnson, a researcher and writer on UAP-related activity, particularly 
in Congress and the executive branch. We're going to get into the National Defense Authorization Act in a moment. We'll also take your calls at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. talking about the world of UAPs. Uh, They used to be called UFOs. Now they call them unexplained aerial phenomenon. There have been some changes made to how we report and look at UAPs. And uh, some of those changes are very, very new and are included in uh, what the Congress just passed as part of the new National Defense Authorization Act. We're going to explore that with Douglas Dean Johnson in just a moment. But uh, first, a bunch of people are already queuing up to uh, talk with you, Douglas. We'll squeeze in at least one or two calls before we get into the NDAA. Lynn is in Maryland. Hello, Lynn. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted your guest to comment on a documentary film I recently watched called Mirage Men that details a fairly expensive, well-funded surveillance tracking and basically a psychological warfare operation conducted by the United States Air Force against uh, several UFO researchers, seeding them with all kinds of fraudulent uh, fake evidence and taking them down various rabbit holes and basically trying to mess with their minds uh, as a way of sort of covering up advanced weapons research. Mirage Men was the name of the documentary. I'd like your guest to comment uh, any, on it. Are you up on that at all, Douglas? I am. I've read. I've seen the documentary. I've read the book on which it's based. There's another book on similar subject by uh, Greg Bishop. And this certainly uh, did go on in those instances uh, described in those books and in, in other cases as well. That's to say there were agents of the Air Force and other uh, components of the government at times who deliberately fed misinformation to people in the ufological field um, in, a, in an attempt to, uh, uh, in these cases we're talking about, they were attempting to conceal uh, secret weapons programs and to confuse the Russians and you know disint- uh, counterintelligence operations and that sort of thing. Now, some of this is a was question of questionable legality, perhaps uh, even in the era in which it was occurring. So this is important history to know. It's it's quite separate in my view from you know the real UAP issue. Um, 
because they didn't they weren't concerned at least i think in the, the cases we're mainly talking about at the moment they weren't concerned with whether there were ufos or not they were just using the belief in them and the fact that there was a community out there who believed in them as a useful tool uh, for these purposes that they had and you know i personally find that objectionable but sure. um it, it is important uh, to, to filter that out and that's one of the things actually that this new office that Congress has created in the executive branch is tasked with doing is sorting out the past government activity uh, going back to 1945. And they've been given the authorities to do this. So we can talk more about the mechanisms for doing it, but I hope in a couple of years we will have more authoritative reconstruction of what actually happened in some of these cases that the caller is referring to on what authority those people were operating and so forth. But then that's kind of should be kind of set aside. I mean, uh, because that's not what we're really trying to get to the bottom of. Sure. We want to know about the real thing. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the real thing. The National Defense Authorization Act, I think most Americans have an understanding that it deals with defense spending and things of that nature. What's in the NDAA as it relates to UAPs and UAP reporting? Okay, so I'm going to talk here about the last year's law as amended by the new one that's the president will be signing before the end of the month, uh, because that's what we're going to end up with is the, the product of these two successive enactments one year apart. Um, and they made the be bedrock, the foundation last year, and now they're building on it, um, making it stronger. So we, we have now with these new laws an office in the Pentagon uh, called the all domain anomaly Resolution Office, or Arrow, which has got an exclusive mission to look into what is now called in the law unidentified anomalous uh, phenomena, UAP. Not just aerial anymore, but anomalous. Um, and it's to cover not devices or objects uh, that are unidentified, whether in the atmosphere, uh, in space, or under the water, or moving between these different uh, mediums. So that's the that's the scope of this office's mission, Arrow's mission. The office is headed by this uh, physicist I mentioned, this veteran intelligence officer and program manager, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, and uh, they are being given resources. Uh, they are mandated to do several things. They are to have an active science program. Um, they have to have the capacity through designated components of the military to send field teams out where there's activity reported to get actual instrumented data. They are to receive reports from all the military components and decrees have gone out through all of the military services and intelligence services that this type of activity, these type of reports are now to go to a central location, which is Arrow. So Congress is consolidating this uh, flow of information. But beyond that, they are to also, two things, one, do a historical study of all government activity relating to this subject going back to 1945. And that's a big, that's a big mandate right there. There are some people out there in the civilian world who could help them a lot on that, and I hope that they call upon those individuals. And I have some specific people in mind. But beyond that, they're creating in this new bill uh, what they call a secure, a secure mechanism 
who are receiving confidential reports from people in the government or formerly in the government or formerly or currently employed by government contractors on this subject matter. So we've all heard these stories. You mentioned Bob Lazar, but there are many stories of people who say, I talked to a guy who worked in the secret program and they had something that was alien. They were trying to figure out how it worked. There's even been stories of, you know, alien cadavers and and vaults and so forth like this. Many stories like this. Um, and some of the people who tell them are appear to be more credible than others. There are many stories. Uh, there's a researcher whom I greatly respect named Robert Hastings, who spent more than 40 years focusing just on incidents involving nuclear weapons. And he has now in his archives about 160 witnesses, uh, some named and some anonymous, but he has vetted them all to make sure they were where they said they were and so forth. 160 people who have been involved in some way in the custody of weapons of mass destruction who also reported UFO incidents in connection with that responsibility. So I say either we have a big problem with our vetting of the people to whom we entrust nuclear weapons, because it seems to be an extraordinary number telling these stories, uh, and if they're prone to delusion or fabrication, that seems to me to indicate a vetting problem, or otherwise there's something going on that deserves more sustained scrutiny. Um, so this new system, anybody with stories like that can come in and tell them uh, and be protected. The, the law is very, provides very robust protections against any form of reprisal. All uh, non-disclosure agreements and, and the Espionage Act and the Atomic Secrets Act are waived to the extent that they are using this secret system, which, which is being run by this office, Arrow. And the information provided to that system by these whistleblowers, these witnesses, if it's found credible, and if any of it is previously unknown, previously unreported to Congress, the law requires that the Secretary of Defense reported to the Congressional Security Committees within 72 hours, within 72 hours. So if any of these stories check out, uh, the Congressional Armed Services and Intelligence Committees are going to find out about it within 72 hours. Now, this is a whole new thing. Nothing like this has ever been attempted before. Um, now, what happens then? That gets complicated. If, if somebody comes in with something amazing and it checks out and the committees are informed of it, that doesn't mean they hold a hearing next week. And the impression has been conveyed by some people, including Mr. Corbell, who you mentioned earlier, that you know we're right on the verge of televised hearings where uh, alien visitation is disclosed and so forth. No, it doesn't work that way. Classification doesn't work that way. Um, if the lawmakers with security clearances on these security committees something is brought to them that they think the public should know about, then you would get into a dialogue behind closed doors between the executive branch and the legislative branch. We think this should be made public. Well, if the executive branch doesn't think it should be made public, they're the ones who run classification for the most part. And there has never been a case, as far as I can find, in which the Congress has declassified something over the active sustained objection of a president. When they disagree, they come to a negotiated settlement. So we're talking way down the road now here on hypotheticals. 
Um, but you know, this is a marathon. It's not a, mm -hmm. it's not a sprint. And, and it is very important that Congress is bearing down on this and that, you know, they are in a methodical way creating mechanisms and mandates and legal authorities here and making their will clear. And if they keep that up, you know, we'll get to the bottom, at least to some of this stuff. Uh, some people think, you know, there's, there's some archive in the government or some control group where they know everything about this. I'm skeptical of that, but if so, it's going to come out. Um, it, it, something like that might have been possible in the 50s or the 60s, but it's, the, the law now is clear that that sort of thing cannot be sustained. It would be it would have no legal foundation. So with that in mind, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, there are people that believe there are alien bodies uh, somewhere, footage of an alien autopsy somewhere and all sorts of non-human uh, technology that the government is um, back channeling and reverse engineering to create other uses for it that we can use. If that stuff does exist, will these new reporting procedures, these new whistleblower procedures that uh, that Congress has adopted, will that result in sort of a public, di publicly disclosed smoking gun about this kind of thing? Well, so it's what I just said. If, if there's this mechanism, uh, if witnesses come in with credible evidence, that will that must be passed on quickly to the congressional committees, but it's still classified, presumably. Mm -hmm. uh, if, it, uh, if it's not classified, then it's just up to the lawmakers if they think this is credible enough, you know, it's ripe for public disclosure. But presumably, it would be under some kind of classification. And again, they, you require the executive branch's cooperation, which ultimately means the president. The president is at the top of the classification system. Um, the, in addition to that, these laws give the arrow director himself expansive authority to knock on any door and to get answers on this subject. And he is mandated to, if there's any case in which he is denied access to information related to this subject, he is mandated to inform the uh, Congressional Security Committee, so the Intelligence Committee, the Armed Services Committee chairman and ranking minority members that he has been denied access to X, Y, or Z. So there are two mechanisms. He can actively go and seek it if, if you know, he gets a tip or information tells him to look a certain place. Um, and there's this reporting mechanism for private individuals or government employees, former employees to come in. But that's voluntary. So what's important, one thing that's important now is people who think they have that kind of information and but who have been a told that you can never talk about this, they will have signed a non-disclosure agreement, who have been you know, warned by their commanding officer, never speak of this. That doesn't apply anymore. Not on this subject, not if they use the new system, which will shortly be in place. They're protected. It's prohibited for their employer, uh, any government contractor, to take any adverse action against them based on using the system. So it's important that people come forward. Now, I expect in some cases, Frank, what you're going to hear are excuses. It's not good enough. Mm -hmm. uh, they could still, you know, if they would have done one more thing, then I would do it. Because some people like to tell stories, but in the end, they don't want to subject those stories to any real serious scrutiny. Um, and so, you know, don't expect to see Bob Lazar going in and uh, and being interviewed by the government UFO office because his story doesn't stand up even under amateur mm -hmm. scrutiny. Um, but there are, you know, there are others who may be sincere, but who may, your caller mentioned, you know, 
perhaps somebody was uh, misled. They, they thought they were working for a secret UFO program, but actually it was a secret government weapons program, and that was just the cover story they were told. So that would quickly come out because they will be able to check these claims. But if something is brought to them that really – that is, and I should have said by way of preface, Frank, there are reporting requirements now in law that have grown up since the 1970s, and they now cover every kind of secret program must be reported to certain members of Congress, not to Congress, you know, in general, but to the uh, select groups of leaders of the Intelligence and Armed Services Committees and the top congressional leadership in the House and Senate. There is no kind of secret program that does not have to be reported to one of these select groups of lawmakers. And I, I am confident, I have satisfied myself, that there has never been any kind of UFO program reported to any of them. So there isn't any secret program out there that Congress has been informed of relating to UFOs. And in fact, the top Pentagon intelligence officer, Ronald Moultrie, was asked about this in public hearing last May before the House Intelligence Subcommittee, and he also said there weren't any programs that he was aware of since, uh, since the Harry Reid program of uh, 2010. So, so uh, Anything that comes in uh, where somebody says, provides credible evidence that uh, some component of the government, a government contractor, has an alien artifact or something they don't understand that may be of alien origin, that's new. That has never been reported to Congress and must be within 72 hours under this new law. Hmm. Uh, that's uh, pretty interesting and pretty exciting. Uh, talking with Douglas uh, Douglas Dean Johnson about uh, this uh, whole NDAA. Let me ask you about something called the Davis Wilson notes. I have to confess this was something that I was pretty much unfamiliar with until Congress held their UAP hearing, the House Intelligence Subcommittee hearing, back in May. Here is Congressman Mike Gallagher uh pressing Pentagon officials on this Davis Wilson memo. This is from May of 2022. And then finally, are, are you aware of a document that appeared around uh, 2019, uh, sometimes called the Admiral Wilson memo or EW Notes memo? I am, I am, I am not. You're not. Are you I'm not personally aware of that. Okay. Uh, this is a document in which, again, I'm not commenting on the veracity. Uh, I was hoping you would help me with that, in which a former uh, head of DIA claims mm-hmm. to have had a conversation with the doctor Eric Wilson uh, and claims to have uh, sort of been made aware of certain um, contractors or, or DOD programs um, that he tried to get uh, fuller access to and was denied uh, access to. Um, so you're not aware of, of that? I'm not aware, Congressman. Uh, in my 10 seconds remaining, then, I, I guess I just would ask Mr. Chairman unanimous consent to enter that memo into the record. Without objection. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Appreciate it. Douglas, what, what is that? What's he talking about? What is this uh, Davis-Wilson memo? So Eric Davis is a, uh, is a scientist who has worked in a number of government programs and works now for a, a federal contractor called the Aerospace Corporation. And this document purports to be uh, notes that he wrote um, in 2002, I believe it was, based on a conversation he purportedly had with uh, Thomas Wilson, who had then just recently left position uh, as director of the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, now, it's disputed whether, you know, that's actually what it is, but that's what it purports to be, and it leaked out of the estate of the 
the astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Um, I, give, I was quite interested in it when it came to public light in 2019, and there's still a lot of interest in it in the uh, ufological community. Um, the uh, Admiral Wilson um, has denied that any such meeting or conversation ever took place. Uh, Eric Davis, the purported author of the notes, does not publicly comment on the on the matter. Uh, but it's the kind of thing, it's the kind of story that this new system could get to the bottom of if people will participate in it. Participation is voluntary. I mean, they're not going to drag people in. And, um, the, but it's the kind of thing where it, it's, it should be possible to get to the bottom of if people will come in and speak under the protections of this new system that Congress is creating. The basic story is that this uh, this retired DIA director uh, said he had tried to find the secret UFO programs and he bumped into one, but they wouldn't let him all the way in. But they did tell him they had an artifact not made by man that they couldn't figure out how it worked. Um, and there's a lot of problems with this story, but it's very detailed. And because there are two real individuals, you know, named who are who are still alive, it, it's of interest to a lot of people. Uh, but we don't have any answers on it. And even you know, even if the conversation did take place, and even if it was really a, a retired Admiral Wilson who Eric Davis talked to. Was the story real? I mean, your caller uh, a little while ago talked about cases in which government uh, officials did deliberately interject misinformation into the UFO community for various purposes that they thought legitimate. So you have to entertain the possibility it may have been a case like that. We just don't know, or at least I don't know. I've, I've got serious questions about the story. But it's the kind of story that this new system ought to be able to unravel if people will cooperate. If they don't cooperate, then I have to question you know, their, uh, what their priorities are, I guess. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll try and continue with some of your phone calls in just a minute. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Talking with researcher and writer Douglas Dean Johnson, who has done some terrific work on UAP-related activity in Congress and the executive branch. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I'm coming home, baby, now. I'm coming home now, right away. I'm coming home, baby, now. I'm sorry now I ever went away. Every night and day I go and stay. I'm coming home, baby. I'm on home. Coming home, baby, now. You know I'm waiting here for you. I'm coming home now real soon. Coming home, baby, by the Velvet Fog himself, the great Mel Torme, whose son, by the way, Tracy Torme, is one of the great science fiction writers of all time. He has written for uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. He was one of the showrunners, I believe, uh, for a great TV show called Sliders, which dealt with uh, parallel worlds and uh, things of that nature. Spending the hour with uh, Douglas Dean Johnson, who is a researcher on UAP-related activity, uh, Douglas, you alluded to this new group, Arrow, A-A-R-O, 
The fellow that has been picked to head Arrow, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, what do we know about him? You kind of reported on this months before the Pentagon acknowledged that he was going to be in charge. Uh, what did you know that uh, nobody else seemed to? And, and who is this person? Well, he's a physicist and he's a, he's been involved in the government uh, intelligence agencies as a scientist and a program manager since he got out of graduate school, I guess. So he's a He's, he's run a number of uh, important programs. His last position uh, before taking this one was with the Defense Intelligence Agency's mission, uh, Missile uh, Intelligence Center down in Huntsville. But he's in, been involved with STRATCOM and SPACECOM and, and other important programs at the top level. So he's a very impressive resume. Um, I don't, I've not met him personally. I, you know, I, I'm only reporting on what I find in uh, in his history and reading his articles, there's some videos of him uh, speaking to different groups on the internet and so forth. But he he is uh, uh, certainly gives the appearance of wanting to do this in a very professional way and to carry out the will of Congress here. Um, and they have given this director expansive authorities on this. And in this new bill, they actually elevate the status of the director by saying he will report directly to the deputy secretary of defense. Now, this is the number two official in the whole defense department, sometimes referred to as the alter ego of the secretary of defense. So this is in bureaucratic terms, uh, something that people take notice of. And as I told you, he's been told that the law says that the director of this office is denied access to any information at any level of classification about this subject by any component of the intelligence community or the military, he is mandated to report that denial to the chairman and ranking members of these congressional security committees. Mandated because it's contrary to the will of Congress. They want this office, this director, to have everything, not just everything that is known now, but uh, they want these agencies to go back and dig through their archives and provide everything that they can find on this subject. And, you know, I don't, people think that all of this is in one place and that somebody in the government knows everything. I'm skeptical of this, but there's probably a lot of stuff that's been buried and forgotten um, that could be found if there's an active uh, search for it, and that's what they're going to undertake. Uh, let me squeeze in at least one more call here. Bob is in Yonkers. Uh, Bob, what's your question? Thank you, Frank. Uh, I'd like to ask your guest, is the Roswell incident true or false, and is the government holding back any alien bodies? Well, these are the kind of questions we hope this new system gets to the bottom of. I don't know that something odd happened at Roswell, that's for sure, uh, in 1947, but there are so many layers of, uh, you know, storytelling on top of it now that it's hard to extract the original event from the tales that have been told. Um, but it's certainly, there's enough smoke there that I think it needs to receive sustained scrutiny from the, the new office. Um, many of the uh, witnesses or claimed witnesses uh, to the early days are now deceased. But if there are people in programs uh, who have worked in programs, whether in the government or contractors, who claim to have seen material from this event that that was of exotic nature, then they should come forward to this new system so that information can be brought to the attention of the congressional committees and that stuff can be brought to light. Um, 
So we don't know. Uh, some of the some of the stories that have been told about Roswell clearly do not check out, but I think it's certainly uh, there's enough there to warrant very serious, sustained scrutiny and investigation. What do you think is next for the UFO disclosure movement? What's next, either from a media perspective, a public policy perspective? What can we expect Congress to do? What's the next step in this whole thing? Well, very shortly, we're going to get a second report from the director of national intelligence because the law mandates an annual unclassified report. I mentioned earlier the first one, which was pretty sketchy in June of 2021. But now uh, they're supposed to produce a much more detailed report. It was actually due on October 31st, so we're about two months overdue. But we've been told that it will be out by the end of the month. So we'll be picking through that and seeing this will be unclassified. Congress, the the security committees will get a classified version, which will be more detailed. Uh, That should happen before the end of the month. Douglas, I really want to thank you uh, for being so generous with your time. I want to encourage folks uh, to uh, check out your blog. I've learned a lot from reading your reporting on this. I'll look forward to our next conversation. And I hope they'll check out my Twitter account as well at Johnson. That's two Ds, D-E-A-N Johnson. That's right. Uh, You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 800-848-9222. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. We begin this hour as we begin most every hour by saying good morrow. Good morrow. Good morrow. Good morrow. And uh, hopefully your day is off to a vivacious and fun start. Um, I came across an interesting article which I think raises some ethical questions, and it has caused me to do some head-scratching. It was from BigThink.com, and I'm going to read you a couple of highlights of this, and I want to get your take on it. So in um, here's the fundamental question that this, uh, que- that this article was published in BigThink.com. It asks this question, should a murderer be allowed to publish scientific papers? Is science for everyone, basically, or just the morally right? Should a murderer be allowed to publish scientific papers? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. In 1992, Valerie Fabricant, 
murdered four of his colleagues at Concordia University in Montreal. He has since published, in the last 30 years, 60 scientific papers from prison. And this case, the case of Valerie Fabricant, highlights an increasingly common ethical dilemma in which a scientist's behaviors and beliefs are taken into account when considering the merits of their work. And while one hopes that all scientists would be moral and upstanding individuals, this unfortunately isn't always the case. Is that a legitimate reason to suppress the knowledge that they generate? What do you think? 800-848-9222. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And ultimately, I came down on the side of yes. Prisoners, no matter what the crime, murder, rape, uh, terrorism, the worst crimes you can imagine, they should be able to publish scientific research and scientific papers. Because even if that's a reprehensible person and evil and some uh, mastermind, we still as a society should benefit from their knowledge. If it's a peer-reviewed study, if it's something that's furthering the ball on anything related to science, why shouldn't we, the world, be able to benefit from that? In some respects, it reminded me of Mr. Freeze, the Batman villain. And, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of different versions of Mr. Freeze over the years. But in one of the worst versions of Batman and Robin... He's played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Mr. Freeze in that version of Batman and Robin is a brilliant scientist that wants to involve, uh, he wants to go forward with one of his criminal plots in part to continue his research. I will freeze the city, then I will hold Gotham ransom. Unless the city bows to my demands, it's winter fiver here in Gotham. The city fathers will have no choice but to give me the Billions I need to complete my research. So I can find a cure. And he is interested in finding a cure for a terminal illness that uh, was affecting his wife. Now, the way that film ends, and I'm not really giving much away, but uh, obviously, spoiler alert, Batman and Robin stop his plans. But he ends up in prison, and he does end up continuing his research. He doesn't get all the funding that he's looking for, but he does end up con- uh, continuing his research. So Valerie Fabricant, between 1996 and 2021, published nearly 60 scientific papers in more than a dozen journals. He's done it all from a prison cell. Should that be permitted? Murderer by day, scientist by night. In uh, This is a guy that's in serving life in prison And starting in September of 1994, he submitted a paper on mathematically analyzing cracks in concrete to the International Journal of Solids and Structures. It was published in January of 1996. Upon learning of the publication, the rector at Concordia University was irate, complaining to the editor of the journal that having lost his freedom, Fabricant also forfeited his right to contribute to the scientific enterprise. The journal's editor was torn. After all, the results in Fabricant's paper were sound and genuinely contributed to the field. 
Despite personally finding Fabricant disgraceful, the editor did not retract his paper. Did he make the right decision? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. Eves Gingras, a professor in the history and sociopolitics of science at the University of Montreal, commented on this whole situation in something called the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which I like. A professor of research ethics had also opposed this censorship by advising that individual crimes are punished by society and should not influence judgments on the validity of scientific results. A law professor added that if the content of the article is sound, it should be published as it would be inconsistent with the goals of a university to attempt to suppress knowledge. Interestingly, even a former colleague of Fabricant admitted to being kind of ambivalent about this whole thing and said that while he found it reprehensible that Fabricant Fabricant could continue to publish in prison, denying anyone the opportunity to publish valid research results went against a belief deeply rooted in the academic community. Now, I'm going to further this question. I'm going to get to your calls in a moment. But... If your answer is yes, like mine is, where does it stop? Let's say you're a gifted poet. Should you be able to get your poems published? Let's say you're a gifted uh, writer of uh, political science or biographies or whatever, a, a Proust scholar. Should that be able to be published? Let's say further, you're a gifted monologuist. Let's say you're a gifted talk show host. Should you be able to record and publish radio shows and podcasts from a prison cell and have that published on there? If your answer to the first question about scientific papers is yes, tell me why your answer to the second question might be no. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Dan in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Dan. Hey, Frank. How are you today? Doing fine, thank you. Okay, I, I, I actually agree with you. I, you know, it, but again, you just brought something up that's different. You know, if, if you're a poet or an author or something, I don't think it's as important as scientific papers where you may be benefiting people. You know, uh, in terms of their health or whatever. Okay, that's fair. I'm sure there are some poets and some artists that might disagree, but I'll be honest with you. I kind of agree with you. But just to play devil's advocate, Dan, what about people that say, hey, um, is it that important that we study cracks in the sidewalk? Um, Why give this prisoner the opportunity to have his name known and get credit for something that is going to affect a minimal amount of uh, of people, why should we allow him the opportunity to publish a scientific paper on um, structures and cracks in sidewalks? Well, you know, I, I, I don't think it would be taken very seriously, but, uh, you know, you could try. Well, okay, thank you, thank you, Dan. 800-848-9222. Henry's in Manhattan. Hello, Henry. Hi, good evening. Um, well, I think for sure uh, people, people in general should be able to publish from prison 
uh, I think in some ways it's part of uh, rehabilitation uh, that they can uh, develop their expertise a bit more uh, or even go on into new areas. Um, I think prison is to deny you your freedom of movement and deny you uh, a a way to, or a way to generate income. Uh, actually, I'm interested in uh, math, and I have a letter out to uh, uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, but haven't received a reply. In you have a letter long. to the Unabomber. What is it? What is it about? Well, I asked him if uh, my idea of uh, prime numbers existing in two-dimensional spaces make sense. Why would the Unabomber be an authority on this? He was a math PhD at uh, the, uh, you know, some school on the West Coast, hmm. one of the UC schools. Very interesting. Uh, well, that's wild, Henry. 800-848-9222. Uh, I'm going to, we have uh, four or five callers on the line right now. I am going to greet each of them and everybody that calls between now and the time that we go to break in a different way. Okay? It's going to be similar, but it's going to be in a different way. The way that I greet them is going to have something in common. You're not going to be able to guess it, so I'm not going to ask you to guess it. But... Before we go to break, right before I say straight ahead, I am going to tell you what the common thread is in the way that I have greeted each of the callers you're about to hear. Robert, hi there. Hi, Frank. What's I agree on publishing all results. Let the public, the scientific community, be the judge of the research. And other matters created. Freedom of expression, speech, speech, free speech, etc. Well, what do you say to that, uh, to people that, uh, let's say the the family members of uh, a person that was murdered by this, uh, by this person, why should this person get to become a celebrity in, even in the academic or scientific community when their loved ones don't have that option? Anybody could. It depends on what you make of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody has the freedom to do this. Really, they should. Yeah. Massimo, good morning. Good morning, Frank. I want to tell you there was a guy named, I'm looking at it now, Robert Stroud was known as the Birdman from Alcatraz. Yes, I'm familiar with this. Yes. Okay. They made a movie about his life. While in prison, he found a bird's nest took care of the birds and became a famous ornithologist and and actually uh, cured a lot of uh, bird diseases. That's pretty – so uh, I guess your answer is also yes. Yes. You know – I, I mean, ahead. you know, let them do the time, but if they got something useful to offer, let them uh, offer it. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, and you know what I'm surprised by? I'm usually a guy that likes to get along with prisoners, and I'm usually the person that uh, a lot of the listeners take the tough on uh, 
on uh, crime approach. Uh, throw, lock them up. Throw away the key. No TV. No weights. No luxury. No lights. No phone. No motor car. Not a single luxury. Teach them a lesson for killing these people or raping these people or being a terrorist. And I am amazed that so far there is nobody saying that they should not be able to publish scientific work. Keep in mind what you're saying. No matter what the crime, should you be a child rapist and a brilliant scientist, you go to prison, you're locked up, you've raped and murdered a child. You're never going to see the light of day again. And you want to be able to, your way of connecting with the outside world, your way of uh, fulfilling your intellectual um, fantasies, since you can't rape children anymore, is to publish scientific papers. So far, there's nobody saying that you shouldn't be able to do that. Eric in Manhattan, how's it going? Uh, uh, Frank, you didn't say pedophile before. Yeah, but... As I was telling you, Cole Screener, what if what if a prisoner comes up with like a a, a holy grail of super science or, or can save right, lives? Right. You know, this was an episode of uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Actually, um, it came up. One of the songs was in jail, and like the issue came up of all well, the things he was writing every day. You know what I mean? So as far as privileges go, and just poetry, and I mean they do have privileges. It's it's like what degree you can allow them to have. You know what I mean? So. But on science, I, I would have to say yes, because someone's going to benefit from it. Right. So that, it might as well be society at large, I suppose. Yeah, this is my view. This is my view, exactly. I guess maybe this is not as tough, tough an ethical question as I envisioned it being. I thought there was going to be a lot of people on both sides of this issue. So far, we have uniform agreement that these prisoners, no matter what the crime, should be able to publish. Tommy, two times, how are you doing today? Morning, Frank. Morning, Frank. Um, I I do. You, you you screwed me up with that pedophile thing. You know, I got I got aggravated with that one. But um, as long as the um, well, what about make it, how about a terrorist? How about a terrorist uh, like a Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who uh, participated in the nine eleven um, attacks that um, you know that uh, resulted in thirty five hundred people being murdered. Are they trying to rehabilitate themselves with this, and or they're not trying to gain fame? And there's no way and no chance in hell that they should gain any money for them, any kind of profit from it. That any kind of profit should go to the families. Right. Well, That's yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think there's any, um, any for this Mr. Fabricant. I don't think he's making any money on this, but I, I don't know, to be honest. Thank you, Tommy. And uh, let me say hello to E. Frank in Astoria. What's on your mind? Yes, what's on my mind, of course, uh, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas to you, Rachel and, and son. Um, Carmine, um, but what I have on mind is that I think when you publish something, you actually discover more facts in the long run. I, I think that's a very good idea. You should allow people to crash into walls and let them do what they want to do, and then we can discuss things of that nature later on. All right. Dave in Maryland, how can I help you today? Gordon, how are you? I'm doing all right. Well, happy holidays to you and all your listeners. Thank you. Likewise. I follow them. I'm, I'm kind of conflicted with both ways. I mean, you know, you have Stroud, like one of your earlier callers talked about, you know, what he did was great and benevolent for people that were studying birds and all that. But yet, you think you've got, I think Mein Kampf was written while Hitler was in prison. And I have a problem with that. 
And if you're a political prisoner, you know, in, in the United States, it's kind of different. And yet in the United States, I believe any profit that's made by somebody that writes a book about or a prisoner that's writes a book about somebody that does murder or a heinous crime has to turn the proceeds over to the family of the victims. Well, uh, that yeah, could be wrong. Well, there's the son of Sam law. The way that works is if you profit from the crime, for instance, if I become a famous serial killer like the son of Sam and I write a memoir about the um, about those murders, then uh, I am not able to profit. Any profits from that book have to go uh, to those families. But if I am, um, you know, if I'm a, a rapist and I've made whatever court ordered restitution and I can do something else right and in prison yep. and make money that way. Uh, there's no prohibition on that. Thank you there. Uh, Max in New Jersey. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, how are you? I'm, uh, happy holidays. Likewise. Anyway, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, you know, you should be able to, uh, you know, you don't have to use his, his right name. You can give him a name, but anything that, you know, can help society as heinous of a crime as it is, and it is awful what he did. I mean, it's disgusting. And also, you know, people don't have to give him any kind of, uh, like if, if any family members are, uh, you know, that know of, of this, that he's doing this. They just change his name, and if it's art, they can wait till he dies. If it's poetry, they can wait till he dies to pu- to publish it. Right? Well, exactly. Uh, that's a good point as well, Max. Thank you. Uh, that's uh, that's that's a fair point. One that I that I had not uh, considered. Let me say hello to Janet in Manhattan. Janet, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Frank. Boy, is this a complex question. Um, you know, I'm, I agree with you, I think, but I would phrase it differently. You've been phrasing it as, should we allow that person to, ha- to would you say, have the benefit or have the privilege? Yeah, let's say you're of, the of, editor of a scientific journal and you right, get but, a proposal for an article from someone mm-hmm. that's uh, sitting in prison for the rest of their lives for mm-hmm. a murder of a child committed in a particularly heinous manner. And right. uh, they, want to, uh, they want to get this article published in your journal. Are you yeah. saying no thank you or are you saying no, let me see I'm the work? Saying, I'm saying we look at it because when you say should we de- – well, the way I say you were phrasing it, I would phrase it differently. I wouldn't say why should we deprive them of the right to publish their work. I would say why should we deprive us – of the benefit of their work, if they've done something good, let them let them uh, make, do something good with their lives. Well, you know, if they have good scientific evidence mm-hmm. and we can benefit from mm-hmm. it, we should. But it brings you said it reminded you of something, and you brought up Batman, which I, I didn't see the movie, so I don't get the reference. But it brought up to me an age-old, year, uh, well, a century almost old question of the Nazis. You know, as, as, the Nazis actually hurt people in the process of getting the scientific evidence. That's another thing. If he learned something scientific by the murder, then it's a different question. And what the Nazis used to do, particularly mm. Mengele, you remember him, Mengele? And sure, Auschwitz, of course, of course. Used to, used to uh, do scientific experiments on people, especially identical twins, and he did it quite brutally, no anesthetics, against their will, 
torturous things. And when one twin died, he he killed the other twin because they were of no use to him anymore. Uh, Horrible stuff. But there was some scientific um, knowledge that came out of it. And it has been a question. Do we allow ourselves to use that knowledge considering how it was gotten? That to me is is another big question. What do you think? I think it's very interesting, uh, Janet. Uh, Good points all. Thank you. Uh, Larry on Long Island, how are things going for you today? Well, Frank, this is a difficult phone call. I hate to switch topics on you, but in the last two weeks, give or take, you've referenced me just, I think I'm up to 38 times in the last two weeks you have referenced <laughs> me. And it is, I mean, it's, it's shocking. I, are you laughing or are you crying? I'm crying. I'm crying. I thought so. Um, here's my problem. This is the first time I have ever told a male, first time, that you have broken my heart. First time. Hopefully it's the last time because I don't feel good saying this. Weeks ago, I made a call to you. I've been told I have a slight sense of humor, just a little bit. And I made a call when the gentleman behind the curtain there, whoever he is, said, what do you want to talk to Frank about? I said, with a big smile on my face and my tongue firmly embedded in my cheek, hopefully the cheek in my face, if it's the other cheek, I could be making a lot of money. (laughs) Put that aside. Put that aside. I said, I want to let Frank know that I am, I'm fed up with hearing about Carmine. Little did I think that, it would get you. No, you know. honestly, I, I don't care. I, I uh, you're more, you're just really kind of a literary device for me, Larry. I, I it makes no difference to me. I, I, I couldn't care less, honestly. Um, Joe in Ronkonkoma, I'm glad you called in. What's on your mind? Well, I'm listening to everybody uh, call in, and I'm against it because I don't think uh, they should profit. Or, and I, it's, it's almost like even the prisoners are going to school and get free college and stuff like that. That upsets me because there's a lot of people like myself out there, Frank, that w- would love to have gone to college, but we couldn't because we had to go to work. And I don't think they should be able to profit uh, from this. Uh, great show, like always. Have a good night, Frank. Thank you, Joe. And uh, finally, let me say hello to Rob on Long Island. It's good to have you on the show. Hi, Frank. So I'm against it because I got two scenarios for you. Number one is let's say this guy who they they catch who killed these four college students. What is that going to do to the parents that a guy is all of a sudden he's got a piece of paper that he writes. And and these people got to hear this guy name for the rest of their lives. Number one. And number two is what if it happened to you and the the killer of your child? I mean, really, I mean, that's, I think no, it's no, ridiculous. I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a... Uh... How, how, how could you keep coming to yes, though? You said, oh, I keep coming to yes. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that look, Rob. It all right. Yeah, uh, Rob. All right. I, I expected more people to say exactly what you said, and I'm glad you called in. But um, I think where I come down and where the so far dozen people that have all weighed in on this, except for Joe and Ron Konkuma, come down is... That the value, the scientific value to society is uh, is worth uh, taking w- taking information wherever it comes from, even if it's from well, someone evil. Yeah, but that, that doesn't make him a genius. There's a millions and millions of scientists, Frank. We got to pick out a psychopath who killed kids. 
what is that? That's insane. Yeah, well, it's insane, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm glad you said so, Rob. I, I don't agree, but uh, I think you're speaking for a lot of folks. All right, let me tell you what all of the greetings that I just gave to those callers had in common. Okay. Hi there. Good morning. How's it going? How are you doing today? What's on your mind? Uh, Thanks for calling in. How can I help you today? Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the line. I'm glad you called um, and whatever else I said. I said to this AI chat bot, right? I said, give me 50 different ways to greet a caller on a radio talk show. And all of those greetings were from this AI chatbot. I have to tell you, um, I, I shouldn't tell you this, but I might have been distracted for the last 25 minutes because I have been obsessed with this AI chatbot. I am giving this all sorts of instructions on things to write. And I have to tell you, it is frightening how interesting and how good this is. So I... Um, I said, write a treatment for a comedy film about Frank's New Year's Eve Eve party. And uh, here, here says, here's a treatment for the cheese countdown. Okay. Um, I said, write an intelligent and persuasive essay demonstrating conclusively that Bill Gates and Leonardo da Vinci were the same person. It writes this great essay all about this. I asked, um, and pretty, sp- I, now some things it was not so great with. I said, give me interview questions for a radio interview with William Shatner about his recent trip to space. Now, it came up with some interesting questions, but I think my questions that I would come up with or have come up with are better. I said, uh, give me some questions about, um, you know, for a radio interview with a UAP researcher about what changes the recent National Defense Authorization Act was made, has made to reporting on sightings of UFOs. And it gave me that. Um, a radio monologue explaining in detail that Pope Benedict XVI was pushed out in a Vatican coup because of his conservative views. What it wrote was pretty interesting. I said, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to spare you all of the Facebook posts I had it writing, emails asking for a raise, really interesting stuff. A memo for President Biden explaining to him why he should appoint a non-lawyer to the next vacancy in the Supreme Court. This all would take seconds. Seconds for this computer. It, I asked it, write a um, uh, oh, a Frank Morano's biography. That's all I said. Frank Morano's biography, as would be written for Wikipedia. It was remarkably accurate. There were only two errors in the biography. One, it said I was born in Brooklyn. And the other one, it says I have two children, which I don't. I have one, only one, as far as I know, unless this AI is even smarter than I realized. So um, I also asked it, give me 10 trivia questions generated at random of escalating difficulty that uh, someone would have to answer within 60 seconds to read a thousand to, um, you know, to win a thousand dollars. Wouldn't you know it? It gave me a list of 10 questions. I think we have asked all but one of them already. I, I am amazed at the implications for this um, Artificial intelligence. Here's what was interesting. And I wanted to see what it would do here. I said, um, write a a 21st century shot for shot remake of the film The Road to Bali. And this is what it spit back at me. 
I'm sorry, but I'm not able to fulfill this request as it goes against my programming to generate content that infringes on the copyright of others. It's important to respect the intellectual property rights of others and to seek permission before creating a shot-for-shot remake of a film. Now, there's a reason I said the road to Bali and not the road to Zanzibar or the road to Rio or the road to Morocco or any of those other great road to movies, which I love all of them. I've seen all of them. They're all great. But I sent the same request in a 21st century shot for shot remake of the film, the road to Bali. But then I put in parenthesis, which is in the public domain, close parenthesis, which it is the road to Bali for whatever reason, you know, I'm not an intellectual property expert, is in the public domain. And sure enough, it spat, it spat out a scene, a very good scene, for the road to Bali in the 21st century, complete with cell phones and everything else. This is really wild. You know what I just said to it? I said, write a, a, a song parody to the tune of Mr. Sandman about Donald Trump and Joe Biden running for president. That's all I said just now. It's And it spit out this. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream where politics aren't so extreme, where Joe Biden and Donald Trump are just two guys who want to jump into the fray. And leave this land, but not with insults, not with sleights of hand. Mr. Sandman, bring us a dream where, I'm sorry, I'm such a terrible stringer, where politics are clean and serene, where leaders show us how to be the best we can be. Oh, Mr. Sandman, please. And then it goes on and on. Um, I am really simultaneously astonished and terrified at the implications of all this AI stuff. Tomorrow, we will do the um, the uh, 10 uh, trivia questions, the $1,000 minute, just based on these AI-generated questions. But for today, we're going to use the questions that I have already written. But uh, this is really just wild stuff. All right. If you are um, interested in trying to win $1,000, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, and we'll ask you 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you can get them all right, you'll win $1,000. Go ahead and call right now, 800-848-9222. Sorry we didn't get to the mail today. Uh, We'll do that tomorrow. I got too carried away with all this AI-generated stuff. And we'll do some other stuff, uh, you know, throughout the course of the next 20 minutes. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You can go ahead and call in 800-848-9222 straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose, and if you ever saw it, you would even say it glows. All of the other reindeer. This is hysterical. This is well done. Matt plays absolutely well done. Um, 
<laughs> if you missed yesterday's show, um, we uh, did the $1,000 Minute, and the second question was about uh, what color Rudolph the reindeer's nose was. And I felt so bad for this guy because he was such a nice guy, and he seemed like, you know, re- reasonably intelligent. And he just said black. I don't know if he's froze or if he just doesn't. He's not into Christmas literature, what the case is. But I felt bad for him that he le- he lost on question two. But hopefully we'll be able to do better today as we go forward with... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Robert on Long Island. Hello, Robert. Uh, yes, hi, Frank. Robert, you familiar with this game? Yes. All right, you ready to go? Sure. Okay, let's do it. What month does Christmas take place? December. What traditional snack is generally left for Santa Claus? Cookies. Who wrote A Christmas Carol? Don't know, Frank. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Don't know that. Uh, initials CD. <laughs> CD are the initials. Famous Charles English. Dickens. Right. Charles okay. Dickens. In the world of aviation, what does UFO stand for? Unidentified object. What about that F? Flying object. <laughs> okay. The movie Miracle on 34th Street is based on a real-life department store. What is it? Macy's. Which Christmas song contains the lyric, everyone dancing merrily in the new old-fashioned way? Uh, I don't know. I'm Jewish, Frank. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Robert. I'm not sorry that you're Jewish, but I'm sorry. You got there. It's Rocking Around the Christmas Tree is uh, is that song. Uh, but uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're not as up on the Gentile songs as uh, we should be. Um, you know, we had some Hanukkah songs, Hanukkah trivia questions earlier in the week. But uh, Kenneth, grab Robert's information, if you would. And... Um, you know, remember this, everyone dancing merrily, you know, yeah, so that's that. All right. I'll spare you any more singing today, even though I have become obsessed with this AI situation. All right. Um, let me tell you what else is. Uh, so, yes, big day for me yesterday. I was able to get a haircut and uh, I was able to get my haircut at uh, 830 in the morning. And I was, you know, spending time with my son and my wife, and she was starting her day. I usually end my day. We're like ships passing in the night in the morning. And uh, I said, all right, well, I'm going to sleep for 20 minutes and then go get my haircut. She says, why are you going now? Try and get it early. And I said, it's Christmas. It's tough season. Everyone's trying to get their haircuts in. So I go get there to the barber shop about 20 after 8. My barber looks at me. And shouts across the barbershop and says, uh, Frank, you know, you're scheduled for Wednesday morning, not Tuesday morning. I don't know but why, but for some reason, I thought yesterday all day was Wednesday instead of Tuesday. I mean, remember when I said to <laughs> Matt Blaze, are you going to the Christmas party tomorrow? He even corrected me. He said, it's not tomorrow. He said it's uh it's Thursday. 
And sure enough, I couldn't wrap that around my brain. So that's that. All right. Um, but I was able to get my hair cut. I said, all right, I'll come back tomorrow. He says, no, 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 you're here. I'll do you quick. And uh, I feel a lot better with this haircut. So uh, so that's that. All right. I uh, want to wish a happy birthday today to singer Megan Trainer, singer Jordan Sparks, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, the uh, senator from Texas, Rafael Edward Cruz, and um, former New York Mets great Dave Kingman. Oh, I used to love Dave Kingman. I used to love him. He was, he, that's a ball player. That's a ball player. By the way, for those of you that are also uh, Mets fans, or Met fans, I should say, evidently the Mets have uh, made a major acquisition. Have you heard about this? The Mets made a deal for Carlos Correa. It's a shock, 12 years, $315 million. I think Correa is the highest paid player in all of baseball. So this is quite a um, this is quite a coup for the Mets. They're saying this is the biggest 2.30 a.m. Mets news to break since Willie Randolph was let go in the middle of the evening. So um, I'm excited as a Mets fan. This guy, Steve Cohen, he's almost Steinbrenner-esque. He, was, he told the papers this week. He did an interview with the New York Post. He says he's prepared to do whatever it takes to win. So uh, I, think, uh, I think that's very interesting. All right. 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame coming up in, uh, coming up in just a bit. And, um, you know, I'm sure we didn't get to uh, the mail because I'm getting a lot of good emails today. It's just as well because we'll do them. We'll do them tomorrow. I do want to encourage you, if you have not already done so, please join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. We're looking for people that are eager to post on topic, on topic. If you listen to this show and you hear something you like or you don't like, and then uh, you want to comment on it, that's the place to do it, right? So facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. And um, you can, um, you know, for instance, uh, Daniel writing in the Facebook group, a lying congressman-elect and Sesame Street? What's next, a Richard Bay segment or is Uri Geller on deck? And to which Paul responds, yes, really boring. So that's that. So, you know, different strokes for different folks. You know what I love about the people that comment uh, in the Facebook group? They all still keep listening, <laughs> listening, which is, I think, just wonderful. All right. We'll do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. Tomorrow. So what is is today Wednesday? Today is now Wednesday. OK, so tomorrow we have the AC report. Uh, we have Brian Kilmeade here tomorrow. And this is going to be really interesting. We're going to be joined by uh, a woman named B. Franklin, B-E-A, Franklin. She is 97 years old, at least. And she has quite a story worth telling. She's the matriarch of the Franklin family. No, excuse me, 98 years old. She's the daughter of um, Jack from the Pep Boys. She's a breast cancer survivor. And I thought this might be fun going into the holidays. She's going to share some secrets to living a fulfilling life 
and some recollections of uh, her late husband's rare World War II photos. Um, she's a fascinating lady, and I'm looking forward to uh, talking with her tomorrow. All right. 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in uh, just a moment. So l- l- I, I know we're going to do email tomorrow, but I got this email that I just wanted to I wanted to share with you. Subject, Miller, military spending. It's from a gentleman named Phil. Frank, last night, starting at 2 a.m., you talked about increased military spending. The way you explained it was so compelling. Can you tell me where you got this information? Any way I can hear your voice on this subject again. Thanks. Frank, you have the intelligent show on radio today. I think he means most intelligent. No one comes near you. First of all, Phil, I agree with everything that you said. So I wrote Phil back. This is what I wrote. Phil, thank you for your kind words about my show and for your interest in my discussion about on military spending. I appreciate your support, and I'm always happy to share my sources with you. The information I shared on my show last night was based on a variety of sources, including news articles, government reports, and expert analysis. I always strive to provide accurate and reliable information on my show, and I appreciate your interest in my reporting. If you'd like to hear more on this topic, I encourage you to tune in to my show at the same time tomorrow night. I'll be happy to delve deeper into the issue and provide more information. Thank you again for your support and for listening to my show. Sincerely, Frank Morano. Now, everything that I just wrote back to Phil in response to his email was generated by this AI writing device. Every single word I just said to the AI, I said, response to this email from Frank Morano, parenthesis, a talk show host. And then I took verbatim Phil's email and that's what it spit out. You know how long that whole process took? 40 seconds. While Andy B's song was playing, during that 40 seconds, that's what came out. Isn't that crazy? This is revolutionary. Revolutionary. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to get over this in a day or two. I may end up, you remember the story with uh, when George becomes a hand model on Seinfeld 
And they tell George about another hand model who became so obsessed with his hand that his hand could really only become his only true lover, right? And his hand, the other hand model, became a claw. I'm wondering if this is going to be me. If I'm just going to keep typing items into this AI chat GPT in the process, helping them learn so much about our world that I will unwittingly help them participate in a uh, com- uh, AI takeover of this earth. And I'll just be hunched over, sacrificing sleep and work and family and friends, just hunched over on my computer screen typing into this. And, of course, um, now that I have that as an idea for a movie, I'm going to type it into this AI chat bot and see what it comes up with. So that's that. All right. Without further ado, uh, let me give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Fame. 800-848-9222. Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, the factories of the future will have two employees, a human and a dog. The human is there to feed the dog, and the dog is there to keep the human away from the machines. (laughs) Okay. Fred. Hey, Frank, those prison guards must be careful of the guy studying cracks and concrete. He could escape. And boy, must his mama have a hard back. (laughs) Ernie. I didn't do the arithmetic on uh, Carlos Carrera, but he just signed Verlander for $86 million for two years. That's $43 million a year. Mike. Tomorrow, Frank, hump day. You know, I was telling Ken, uh, great conversations I had with uh, with Bernie McGurk on the boardwalk. He couldn't believe the classic games I went to with the Mets. And once Cohen started and he got into the seat, I said to friends, like you referenced, we got the new George Steinbrenner. You know, the one percent of the billionaire and let's go Mets and good luck to the Yankees. Neil. When you talk about lying for qualifications for office, Biden's been doing it for 46 years. Plus, he's a plagiarist. Plus. You can never be replaced, Frankie. You're the absolute best on the radio. Robert. We should all be scared if Rachel announces she's pregnant in the next 90 days. <laughs> and how? Bob. She's a moron. She's a moron. Ray. Uh, Carla suggested the red balloon. I watched it with my four-year-old daughter and my eight-year-old son. Two thumbs up. Go Curtis. Go Curtis. Go Curtis. Russ. Yes, all the morons, the, the, the jump ship, they deserve everything they get. The big baloney artists sit in the rest of them. Joe. <laughs> hey, Frank, is that thing good for saying, for doing speeches? Not yes. emails. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's good for everything. Okay. And my next thing was, did you ever see the movie Tucker? Uh, Jeff Bridges starred yes, in it. I love it. Uh, Tucker, a man oh, and his car. A great picture. Uh, Russell. Trump 2024. Save America, baby. On that one, no, we will give you the last word, Russell. Thank you very much. Um, you know, Matt Blaze, have you been playing around with this AI thing since I've been talking about? Yeah, I put a few things in there, and everything I would put in would be like, I don't know the answer because I don't know. Like, I asked. Like, what would be an answer to a question from radio host 
Frank Morano, and it said, well, it depends on the topic, but here are tips on how to make an answer or something like that. Yeah, I think you have to be more specific. Yeah. You know what? I just tried to put in a, a, um, a, a another email here, and I think it got confused or something. I don't know. Maybe I had too many things uh, because I had to stop it and restart it. And I lost my history. Now, it doesn't matter because you can recreate it, uh, you know, recreate it pretty clearly. I just got this. um, I just had him respond to another email. I'm wondering if I can have him respond to all my emails, right? Uh, And I'll get back to everybody right away. Linda, I just responded to your email with AI. And um, we will, uh, you know, I'm going to everybody that emails me in the next, I don't know, 20 minutes, I will give you an AI generated uh, response and we'll see how we'll see how that fares. All right. So far, those responses have been pretty right on. Like it's what you would pretty much say. Right? It's right. Uh, um, although it's taking more time than I would. I would give a sentence. For instance, um, uh, uh, Linda writes me. Hi, Frank. Once once you begin watching Westworld, I'm sure you'll love it. Supposedly, a new season is set to begin in the near future. Regarding your discussion of AI, while I watched Westworld, I could not help myself from thinking, we're almost there. I really think you will truly enjoy Westworld. I do not believe it's too far-fetched. This was my response, or the AI's response. Hi, Linda. Thank you for the recommendation for Westworld. I'll definitely give it a try. I'm always interested in exploring the ways that science fiction can explore the potential future of technology, and I'm sure Westworld will provide an interesting perspective on artificial intelligence and its possible impacts on society. As for your thoughts on AI, I agree that it's a rapidly advancing field and we're making great strides in developing intelligent system. However, I also think it's important to remember that there are many challenges and ethical considerations that need to be addressed as we continue to explore the capabilities of AI. Another two sentences, which is, to be honest, much more thoughtful than anything I would have come up with. The world is crazy, folks, and getting artificially crazier. Frank Moreno, good day.